Austin Blackie. Outside the law is no strange territory to Blackie, but never does he stray for personal reward, although the police, and notably Inspector Faraday, find no solace in his motives and only bewilderment in his ability to remain out of their reach. Austin Blackie, enemy to those who make him an enemy, friend to those who have no friend. Time now for Rocky Jordan. Rocky Jordan is presented from Columbia Square in Hollywood and stars Jack Moyles in the title role. It's not that I ever objected to publicity about me or my cafe tambourine appearing in the Cairo newspapers, but this particular item I didn't like. It said, Captain Sam Sabaya of the Cairo police announced today that the body found floating in the Nile last night has definitely been identified as that of the local cafe owner, Rocky Jordan. Well, the news came as something of a shock. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Investigator, starring William Gargan. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob, welcoming you to the new adventures of Sam Spade. This episode is from January 26th, 1951. The episode is entitled Chateau MacLeod Body Caper. The Chateau MacLeod Caper, as it were. And the adventures of Rocky Jordan, which used to be called A Man Named Jordan, which was on for 15 minutes daily. And is now called The Adventures of Rocky Jordan. And this episode is from August 28th. 1949, the episode is entitled Lady from Istanbul, and then we have The New Adventures of Michael Shane from January 15, 1949, the episode is entitled Talani Tears Caper, or the Tallulah Bankhead Caper, I don't know which one, and then Boston Blackie from December 13, 1945, and Murder at the Movies, and then we have a brand new Spanking you show to bring to you called Barry Craig. Not Private Eye, not Private Investigator, not Private Detective, but Confidential Investigator. Much different from December 17th, 1951. The episode is entitled Judge and the Champ. And enjoy all these. And I'll see you all back here 
Next week, God willing, please don't rise. Get your vaccination, wear your mask, social distance, do all that stuff that your state tells you to do, and do it anyway if their state doesn't tell you to do it. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sweetheart. How was your vacation, Sam? Who said it was a vacation? Well, I thought you said you were going skiing for a weekend. With me, F, it's always work. Do you know you can get killed on skis? If you say so, Sam. Yes. Most people just break their legs. Most people pick some easy little slope, the cowards. But I know a ski run up near a town called Lucerne that's sudden death. I know a ski run called the Backbreaker. Really? How dull. And one they named Suicide Drop. Effie, stop trying to top me. You just can't. This was the deadliest ski country ever seen. You just sit there while I do a Christiania swing down Market Street, a Galender sprung up the stairs, and a Telmark right through the door with a tail I took out of the deep freeze only last night. The Chateau McLeod caper. For NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. I just wanted to prove I could do it. I did a herringbone up the stairs. And those clothes. (sighs) I'll just bet you've rented all those things, Sam. You were never in the snow country at all. So, you don't believe me, huh? Well, here, Doubting Effie, I brought you proof. And don't tell me I rented this. A snowball? Yes. Sam! A real snowball! Yes, I brought back two of them in a thermos box. Where's the other one? I threw it at a policeman. It was a freezy, you know, soaked with water and ice. Oh, Sam, you're wonderful. Mm. I can't believe that you had trouble this weekend. Oh, no? You cut that snowball open and you'll find a blood-stained bullet inside of it. And behind the bullet lies a tail. Ready? I'm always ready, Sam. Yes. Mm-hmm. They fill it in to Sierra County Sheriff's Office, Lucerne, California, from Samuel Spade, San Francisco, license number 137596. Subject? The Chateau McLeod caper. Dear Sheriff, you run a neat little cobby up there at Sierra, and I hate to be snide, but when my train steamed into the cold mountain air of your lovely little village of Lucerne, I knew the chill of death was afoot. It had to be. The place was too beautiful to last. The background hills were right out of the Alps. The snow from Grandma Moses and the rustic buildings that snuggled under the mantle of white were just too cute for words. It was abnormally perfect. Something had to give. Well. You were the only young man who got off the train. Are you from McLeod? Well, I'm supposed to find a Chateau McLeod. Oh, what do you know? I got the right man on the first try. Ruby sent me down to pick you up. Now, you could pick me up almost any time. Well, that took a little chill off the day. Shall we go? Ooh, mush. Mush. Glided out of the station, runners squeaking on snow, the soft pad of hooves, and the jangle of Mary Bell. We had a bearskin lap robe. It was a short bear, so we had to move close. Her cheeks were apple red, and her silk brown hair flowed in a spanking breeze. Oh, it was a scene that will forever. Ruby, 
tells me you're an advertising genius. Well, I have placed a few ads in my day, mostly help wanted. Aha, uh-huh, don't kid me. He says you're going to put the McLeod canneries right on top with a new campaign. On top. You know, you're supposed to have a big name. Just eight letters, Sam Spade. Oh? Well, I'm Rita Parker. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be Rufy's girlfriend. Of course, I think it's only to make his wife mad. But mm. it's fun up here. Yeah, so this is my first trip. Oh, well, then you're in for a treat. Uh, that is, if abnormal psychology appeals to you. What does that mean? The McLeod Guest Register is always full of dynamite. Oh. For example, this yeah. weekend reads thusly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rufus McLeod with half of the money in the world trying to get the other half. Good. His wife, who has an interlocutory decree. Mrs. Interlocutor. <laughs> uh, yeah, Cora. Yeah. Her boyfriend, Paul Endicott, a uh, gigolo type. Mm. Uh, Charlie Allison, co-worker and friend to Rufus. He's a, a food technician or something dull. So. And then there's Tozier Fenborg, ski instructor who comes down like a Wolf on the fold. Oh. And people like that. Yes. Well, I'll never remember all the names. I'm in the ad game, you know. It's initials to me. I call people, uh, well, R-L-T-S, uh, N-T-G, and uh, you know. Well, the names don't mean a thing. Just remember this. Every 30 seconds, duck. I beg your pardon? <laughs> The McLeod estate was eight miles out of town, and it seemed we were there in no time at all. Rita Parker hustled the Alpine buckboard and mare into a stable while I went up to the chateau to meet my employer, Rufus McLeod. It was more of a Swiss chalet, you know, where the second floor is larger than the first, and I guarantee that no one in Switzerland could have afforded this chalet, even with the second floor the same size as the first. I walked in and found Rufus, big and red-faced, standing in front of a fireplace that could easily have roasted a brace of oxen. Rump to rump. Of course, you're Sam Spade. I am, Mr. McClellan. Well, you came at an opportune time. There's Good. no one around to overhear our conversation. I suppose you wonder why I hired a detective for a place like this. Well, not especially. I go where the people go and the money. Uh, you'll be paid well for your time and trouble. I must be quick. In essence, this is my situation. Yes. Earlier this week, I received an anonymous letter saying that if I invited the guest list I'd planned for this weekend, there might be serious trouble. Um, here's the letter. Uh, keep it to yourself. It's a Los Angeles postmark. I see. Well, we might start by tracing down this typewriter through an L.A. detective agency. Every one of my charming guests is from Los Angeles. One of them wrote it, if you ask me. Very likely. I want to know who wrote it, if I can, but more than that, I wonder what serious trouble the writer is referring to. The girl you sent to pick me up said you had a very volatile group of people assembled. Yeah, perhaps they're high-strung individuals, but they're civilized. I'm sure their conflict would never get beyond a cutting phrase or two, or perhaps a punch thrown here or there. Well, then you really don't believe you'll have any trouble? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I thought it would be advisable to have a man like yourself around. Yes. One who deals in trouble professionally. Perhaps if things do get out of line, you can help repair the damages or even prevent things from occurring. Well, I'll do my best, Mr. McLeod, but it's not easy to look for something when you don't know what you're looking for. Oh, here they come, Spade. Oh. Back from the ski runs. Oh, I told them you were handling an advertising campaign for my canneries. came stamping in, pulling off gloves, unzipping parkas, and if it hadn't been for the grown-up dialogue, looking all the world like a group of carefree children. It was hard to believe that the chill of death was also in them even then. 
I couldn't keep my eyes off one of the particular members of the group. Mossberg ski boots, Chinese vermilion downhill pants, and a candy-striped parka, which she now pulled over her lovely head. The sweater she wore underneath was, I'm sure, designed for someone much smaller. A dachshund, perhaps? This the advertising man you've been telling me about, Ruth? Oh, uh, Mr. Samuel Spade, my uh, half-wife, Cora. Half? Well, how how do you do? Glad you came, Sam. We can always use another support in the crowd. Hey, everybody, shut up! Introducing the incomparable, fabulous Mr. Samuel Spade. Me, Paul Endicott, Rita Parker, Charlie Allison, Phyllis yes, Finborg. Yes, Charlie's the one who doesn't ski. I'll doesn't. take snowshoes any day. I can't get anywhere in snowshoes. You've heard, perhaps, of the tortoise and the hare. Rufus, rings with some drinks, Tom and Jerry, top toddies, coffee, garage, something. Yeah, we're having hot buttered rum. The stuff's warming in the kitchen. Well, get it up, get it up. Right away, Cora. And as for the rest of you, ready? A one, a, a two, one? a three. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, man. Once again, let every loyal May man say, Oh, dee do dee do They took up the song with a gusto, lifting imaginary drinks into the air, and it was all very jolly. For a party that was supposed to be fought with danger, this one certainly started out in just the opposite direction. The drinks came, and things got even merrier. Lunch was served, and afterwards I slipped into some outdoor gear and strapped on some skis. Everybody scattered different directions. Rufus McLeod and I skied to a place three miles away called the Halfway Cabin. Between the chateau and the cabin was a small lake called Royal Lake, completely frozen over. Rufus stood in front of the cabin, firing a 30-30 at a target, led up down on the woods to the east. What do you see through the glasses, Spade? Two bullseyes and nothing outside of the aid ring. That's great offhand shooting at this range and standing on skis. Well, I can do much better than that. Watch this. See that silver tip on that big Norwegian fur over there? Yeah. Now cut it off. Hey, look out! What? What? Well, he came swooping out of nowhere, Spade. I swear he did. Oh, I think he hit him. Who is it? That's Paul Endicott. No, no, he's up. Good. There's Cora with him. You told me nobody was supposed to be skiing in that area. Yeah, they're not. Well, here he comes, and he looks plenty mad. What do I care about him? He's just after Cora for the money I give her, that's all. You're going to kill me, you stupid fool. You weren't supposed to be skiing there, Endicott, and it was an accident. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, that was no accident. All right, all right, all right. You keep out of this. You keep out or I'll throw one at you. Oh, that I'd love. Oh, Paul, now stop it. And the rest of you quit acting like children. Your boyfriend threw a sucker punch at me, Cora, and even if he is my guest, there's a limit to hospitality. I don't call one punch and even trade for a 30-30 bullet. You aren't hit, so don't start crying. Rufus, I have the feeling you wouldn't mind if he were hit. You wouldn't mind at all. Paul, I've just decided I don't like you without a mustache. Well, from then on, everybody dropped the pretense, and you knew where you stood. And it was chilly, too. Later in the day, we were all back at the chateau again, and Paul Endicott wove his delicate variation on his main theme. I'll knock your block off. I tell you, Mr. Endicott, you have some delusions. I have no delusions, Tozier. I've seen the way you look at Cora, the way you two are always trying to lose me on the trails. Some people ski faster than others. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. The next time you try to wolf this girl, it's going to be your last. I'm nobody's wolf. I'm a ski instructor. 
That is what I was hired for. Well, stick to what you were hired for. Knock off the extracurricular activity. I don't have to take this kind of talk from you. Anything you'd like to do about it? As a matter of fact, there is. Uh, Get it. Boys. Men. Well, even so, I won't take a minute. Ready? Yes, there we are. Now, uh, where are we heading, Mrs. McLeod? Oh, I thought we might go out to the boathouse. It's on the southern tip of Royal Lake. It's only a mile and a half. Nothing. And my name is Cora. I'm not really Mrs. McLeod anymore. That's kind of rough on you, isn't it? Bringing your new boyfriend around all of your ex-husband's friends? Well, I like it up here. Rufus likes to have me. They're not all against Paul. At least they weren't. But he's on the defensive so much, he's going to make enemies of all of them. Yes, he's off to a rousing start, I'd say. Do you know something, Sam? Hmm? I don't care about Paul Endicott, really. Hmm? Or Rufus McLeod, or Tosha Sinborg, or anybody. I just care about Cora McLeod. Well, now, that's a good, honest answer. You know, most people wouldn't be that frank. But, Sam... Eh? I haven't known you long. Well, I, uh... I like your style. I could care about you. It broke my heart not to stop right there on the trail and kiss her because that's what she wanted me to do. So that's why I didn't do it. And I'll never turn down anything better. Well, next scene, a boathouse. And when we got there, it was not at all the way I thought. Food technician and close friend of Rufus McLeod was there, working on something that baffled me at first. It's a nice boat, Mr. Spade. That's what it is. Belongs to Rufus. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen one up close before. I'd take you for a ride, but this one needs a lot of work before anybody could use it. I'm just puttering. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to come out here, Cora? Because Paul and Tosha Sinbor got in a fight over me, and I got tired of the whole thing. Sam and I went out with some air. Oh. Well, glad you did. I was getting a bit lonesome. You see, Sam, they always leave me in a cloud of snow on their skis, and I just plod along on snowshoes all by myself. Well, maybe we can go walking together sometime. I used to be able to shake a pretty good snowshoe. It's a deal. Tomorrow morning, I'll show you the place. Sam, I think I'll stick around here and help Charlie with the ice boat. Oh. Unless you're crazy about ice boats, why don't you go back to the chateau? We'll be there in time for dinner. Well, I don't need any engraved invitation. I hope you catch a common cold. The trouble with that girl was that she only wanted one man at a time around her. Back at the chateau, there was no one but the cook. The Marjorie main part. Ah, too tall. As supper time approached, Rufus came in. Then Rita, then Cora, then Allison, and finally Tozier, in that order. And the order is important. Because you see, nowhere in the list is the name of Paul Endicott. He didn't come in for supper, nor for the next three hours. It was dark by then, and Rufus McLeod was worried about Endicott. So we fanned out in a searching party. I was alone when I found them. He was lying in the snow, 300 yards west of the halfway cabin. There was a 30-30 slug in him. Period. End of Paul Endicott. You are listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective... Sam Spade. 
This Sunday, Cary Grant and Betsy Drake star in the second of the new Mr. and Mrs. Blanding series over most of these NBC stations. The delightful tribulations of Jim Blandings and his wife Muriel as they built their famous dream house entertain millions as a novel and then as a motion picture. And now you can follow the further adventures of Mr. and Mrs. Blandings every Sunday on NBC. And Sunday also means your weekly visit with the hilarious Harrises on the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. And now back to the Chateau McLeod caper, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. There were no ski marks near the body of Paul Endicott, just his own. Somebody had drawn a bead on him in the dust from some distance. I started to look for the rest of the searching party and then changed my mind. If the body of Endicott wasn't found, the murderer might wonder what happened to it, get worried, and make a mistake. So I picked him up, carried him to a small cave I found, covered the entrance with snow, brushed over the ski marks, and went back to the chateau. One by one, they all showed up discouraged. Oh, Keep looking. I know how you feel, Cora, darling. It's too dark. We'll try tomorrow. Oh, don't worry about him. Paul can take care of himself. How can he take care of himself, Miss Parker, if he got lost? He said he got lost. I am assuming. I think we're all assuming too much. I'm sure that it's nothing to worry about. If I know Paul, he'll show up tomorrow with some tall tale to tell. What do you think, Mr. Spade? What does an advertising executive know? Cora, your manners. A sponsor might be listening. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Sam. I'm upset. Okay, okay. Frankly, I don't know what to think. But if I were a detective, I'd hazard a guess that uh, Paul met with foul play. Oh, nonsense, Spade, nonsense. Come on, everybody, let's have a drink and have some fun. Paul will be back, and even if he isn't, who really cares? Scotch for me. And I guess nobody cared. Rufus was a little more jolly than usual, and the drinks began to dispel the gloom. It was as if Paul Endicott never had existed. It began to get late, and the bizarre wake broke up. Everybody went to bed, including me. I lay there fully dressed, looking up at the beam ceiling for an hour. About then, my doorknob turned, and the door slid open and shut. Someone moved quietly into my bed as I was sliding my thirty-eight out of its holster. Sam, hmm? me, Rita. Oh. Are you awake? Yeah, I uh, wasn't even under the covers. Mind if I sit down here? Not a bit. Sam, hmm? Sam, I'm scared. I wish I could leave here. Oh, what's the matter? Paul's dead. I know he is. He didn't mean anything to me one way or the other, but I know he's dead. Anything to back up your feelings? I guess not. It's, it's just something I'm sure of. Why'd you come to me? Because you're really a detective and I know it. Oh, me? Oh, now, you handled a case for my father once. You just don't remember me. All right, I'm a detective. Rufus hired me because he expected trouble. Sam, I'll tell you something about Paul. Yeah? Cora didn't really like him. They were always fighting. She only cares about herself, so she said. Tell me, what kind of a car does Paul drive? Uh, It's a yellow convertible, but it's still in the garage. I checked. Any other cars missing? No, no, they're all there. Oh, and I found out something else. What? Before supper, there was a gun missing from Rufus's gun rack. It's back now. Mm -hmm. Anything else? That's all I know, Sam, except that Paul's dead. I know it. I wish I'd never come up here. After she left, I dressed for outdoors and climbed through the bedroom window. It was still and quiet, and it was a quarter moon when I skied away from the chateau. I wanted to look the land over myself before the next day when the clues, if any, were trampled into the snow. 
When I passed the northern tip of Royal Lake on the trail to the halfway cabin, I saw a new set of ski tracks heading into the woods where I had found Endicott's body. I followed them, and they went right to the cave where I had hidden them. And he was gone. I was standing there, pondering this, when I thought I saw something move in the trees to the west of me. I stood stock still. That was a mistake. A bullet splintered a tree next to me, and I shoved off as fast as I could. There was no second shot. I circled around in the trees trying to catch sight of someone. Nothing. I kept in the shadows and made for the halfway cabin. It was dark and quiet, at least until I opened the door. I tried, but he had the advantage of surprise and some kind of a club. I ended up on the floor with someone sitting on my chest. All right, I, I have your gun. You make one wrong move, Spade, and I'll use it. It's got bullets in it and a hair trigger, so be careful. We could use a little light. As you see, there's Paul Endicott's body. Yeah. Why did you find him, Tozier? They're only putting a noose around your neck. <laughs> You're the very perceiving men, Mr. Spade. How do you figure I did it? I talk better on my feet. Just remember the gun. If you didn't kill him, how else would you know where the body was? Because I know this country like the back of my hand. He had to be somewhere. You are the killer, Mr. Spade. Me? Why, I do not know. You found the body before anyone else could. Hit it, then clumsily tried to hide your tracks. Don't be silly. Why would I come back? A murderer always worries about his crime. Did he forget something? Was something left undone? It's unnatural. It sounds good, except it isn't true. You couldn't pin it on me in a month of Sundays. But somebody might just tie it on to you. That's what you think. Do you know what I'm going to do now? I wouldn't want to guess. The shots came pouring in through the window and Tozier Svenborg went down. I saw the flash of a face outside and was gone. I kicked at the lamp, threw the place into darkness and lay on the floor. Then I crawled over to Svenborg and took my gun back. Well, that was a surprise. It hurt quite a bit. Where'd you get it? Oh, somewhere in the back. Let me see. Ah, it's at the shoulder level. Then he won't die anyway. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I misjudged you, Mr. Spade. Go after him. Go after him and catch whoever it was. I can't leave you here. I'll take care of myself. Just leave me your gun for protection. No, I'll stay. Go, please, while there's time. Or are you afraid? <laughs> I was, but I gave him my gun and left. Outside, there were many ski tracks, but a fresh set led left from the halfway cabin down. They went right to the edge of Royal Lake and then stopped. There were no marks of ski poles on the ice, so I followed the shoreline, looking for some kind of a clue. It wasn't until I reached the southern tip of Royal Lake that my effort was rewarded. Leading up from the ice were a set of footprints, then a set of ski marks. They led to the boathouse. Inside, I found two interesting items. One, a dismantled ice boat with fresh ice on the runners. Two, a pair of skis with snow in the grooves. I made my way along the beaten pack back to the chateau. Circled it once, found interesting item number three, and went in. Well, what were you doing up, Fate? Did you hear the shots, too? Yeah, I thought I'd look around. It's cold. Out of a sound sleep, Sam. What was it, you know? Well, I didn't find out about the first shot, Mrs. McLeod. That was fired at me. But the next three were fired at a man named Tozier Spenborg. Oh, no. Tozier? How did it happen, Spade? What's it all about? He found Endicott's body in the woods. Dead? Very. I told you, Sam. I told you. Told him what? What do you know about it? Nothing. I, I just had the feeling, that's all. You know something. Now tell us or I'll slap the rents right out of your head. I don't know anything. Anything at all. I just had a feeling. Who shot Tosher Spade and why? I don't know. I was standing with him in the halfway cabin. Somebody shot through the window. Didn't you see them? Don't you know who it was? I was too busy ducking to look. 
Just answer me one thing. Have any of you been out? Of course not. Uh, no. I haven't, and Mr. Allison's in bed. Of course, they all lied. A cloud shirt was stained with sweat. He'd been moving fast somewhere. The ski pants sticking out from under Cora's robe were wet, and Rita Parker was now dressed when she wasn't before. I was trying to figure out something to say when Charlie Allison came out from his bedroom, rubbing sleep out of his eyes and pulling a robe on. What's going on here? What's all the excitement about? They found Paul, dead. And somebody shot Tozier. No. Where is Tozier? In the halfway cabin. Well, let's get him to a doctor. I'll call one from town. Uh, why don't you go up and get Tozier? I'll have a car ready and we'll take him right into the Lucerne Hospital. Wait a minute. What about the murderer? Who did the shooting? Nobody's getting out of my sight. It had to be one of us. Why, Cora? Oh, it wasn't just anybody. We're the only ones left walking. Why don't you ask Sam? He's the detective. Detective? Yes, I hired him because somebody sent me an anonymous letter saying there'd be trouble. You knew there was going to be trouble, Rufus. Somebody else knew. Then why did you let people come up here? Yeah, what's the big idea? Why did you do? Wait a minute. Spade, what did you find out? Well, if you'll all wait here a minute, I'll tell you. <laughs> When I circled the chateau before I came in, I'd seen footprints leading to a window, not mine. That meant somebody else used the back way in and out, too. I wanted to find out whose window it was. And, of course, while I was looking, I remember the apparently dismantled ice boat and the fact that a set of skis were in the boathouse. It took me about a minute to find the right room, but somebody knew it. All right, Spade, stand where you are. Allison, you might be a great food technician, but you're a lousy killer. Yeah, well, at least he didn't get her. Neither will you. Oh, I got him, Spade. All right, come on, stand up. Come on. You sap. Cora, huh? You think you could get her by killing somebody? Shut up, leave me alone. I'm sorry for you. Sorry for anyone that ever knew her. I'm sorry for myself. She loves me, you fool. She... What's the matter? I was down the feet. We found our killer, Mrs. McLeod. Charlie? Yes, baby, I... Oh, Rufus, it's been a long day. I need a drink. And that goes to show you how cold it can get in the snow country. F, period, end of report. Sam, why would a man do anything like that? When he knew he couldn't get away with it. Because he was stupid, Effie. People must have told him a million times that they told him once, crime just doesn't pay. No. Yes. Now, go type that up, will you? Go on, scamper, scamper. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Here's news of two important musical events. This Saturday, Arturo Toscanini begins a new Saturday series of concerts with the NBC Symphony. And for his premiere, the celebrated maestro Toscanini will present a special hour-and-a-half performance of Verdi's Requiem. And beginning next Monday, you can hear the first in a new series by the Boston Pops Orchestra. P.S. Page, uh, that is. What P.S. Page? Why should it need a P.S.? Dan, you know that this report, uh, to borrow a phrase from you, is full of holes. My phrase? I wish I'd never said it. Now, for instance, who sent the note to Rufus? Paul Endicott. 
He expected trouble. That's why he was so belligerent to everybody. All right. Yes. I'm going to come right out and ask you. Good. Why did Allison kill him? Well, I thought it was rather obvious, Effie. Cora was leaving Rufus McLeod for Allison, but because Allison worked for McLeod until Cora's divorce was final, they didn't want Rufus to know about it. So they used Paul Endicott as a decoy love affair. But Albert Endicott didn't want to get Cora up. <clears throat> oh, but that was it, Sam. Effie, I don't know how you ever guessed. Endicott saw in it a chance to pick up a buck with a little blackmail. It was just a wild guess, Sam. Yes. And, of course, Allison did ski, didn't he? What do you think? Well, how else could he get around so fast? <laughs> and he made such a point about those snowshoes. Uh, Sam. Yes? If I'd written the caper, I'd have covered that up a little. Come here. Oh, I'm sorry, Sam. I guess I shouldn't have said that. I'm... You certainly should not have. Oh. You know there's only one thing around here you're supposed to say. Yes, Sam, I know. I know. Make it fast. Good night, Sam. <laughs> Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. Script for tonight's adventure by John Michael Hayes. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. Join us again next week, same time, for another adventure with Sam Spade. Do you keep an appointment book? In 1950, 30,000 people kept an appointment they hadn't bargained for with infantile paralysis. And four out of five of these were helped with March of Dimes money. We must go on helping, yet we also must be prepared for what may come in this year. March of Dimes is your way of fighting infantile paralysis. Give all you can to your local March of Dimes headquarters. Join the 1951 March of Dimes today. The Magnificent Montague next, then at Stuffy's Tavern on NBC. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob. I thought I would step in here and explain a little bit about the history of Rocky Jordan. Number one, Rick, Rocky Jordan was heard as a 15-minute program uh, daily, uh, five days a week, called A Man Named Jordan, or A Man Called Jordan, I don't know which one. And uh, Rocky Jordan's stomping grounds were Istanbul, Turkey, not Cairo, Egypt. However, the Nazis invaded Istanbul, but before they could, Rocky Jordan left. And he left his girlfriend behind and his former partner in the Cafe Tambourine and opened up a new Cafe Tambourine in Cairo, Egypt. So that's some of the history of Rocky Jordan. And so enjoy this episode. Buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan, brought to you by Del Monte Foods, the brand preferred by more women than any other line of canned fruits and vegetables in the world.
Not far from the mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan and this week's story, The Lady from Istanbul. It was just like any other busy evening in the tambourine. Outside of the tourists, the customers were about the same, too. Including a towering hulk of a dock worker with the incredible name of Abdul Omalia, who was paying for every three and taking the fourth on the house. But it was another customer who held my interest. She was seated at a corner table holding conversation with a tall, pencil-mustache man. She was American and she was lovely, with soft green eyes shadowed by heavy lashes to match her jet-black hair. I was trying to decide what she reminded me of. St. Louis, maybe, or New Orleans. A most beautiful creature, eh, Rocky? Huh? Oh, yes, she is, Abdul. But not for you, Effendi, as you can see. Oh, you get me wrong. The girl's upset about something. A little too upset. <laughs> a lover's quarrel. What else? <laughs> Come forget her and join me for a drink. Uh, not this time, Abdul, thanks. Have another on the house. Uh, bartender! Yeah? You heard him, Mr. Jordan. I was sure there was more than anger in her tense face and eyes. What I saw there was a strange uncertainty and terror. Leave me alone. Get up from there. No. My arm, Henri, you're hurting me. It takes pain to teach a lesson such as this. <laughs> All right, that's enough, mister. Break it up. This is no affair of yours. In my cafe, it is. Now beat it. So, with you, it takes the knife, eh? Who are you? <laughs> now pick up that knife and get out of here. Rest assured, you have not seen the last of me. You will more than regret this. Both of you. All right, folks, settle down. It happens every day. Show's over. Back to your tables. Mr. Jordan. You all right, lady? Yes, but I'm, I'm so dreadfully sorry. Oh, you needn't be. Here, sit down. Mind if I join you? Please do. I'm Marlo Granger. It's a pleasure. I don't recall meeting the guy with the mustache, either. Oh, his name is Paget. Henri Paget. Mm, not a very nice playmate. He's only a shipboard acquaintance. We met aboard the Doreen B, coming down from Istanbul. Well, then you're new to Cairo. Our boat docked here just this evening. I'm at Shepherd's now. We were sightseeing and came in here. I didn't know what he was like, Mr. Jordan. Okay, Marlo, let's forget him then, huh? I would like nothing better. Thank you for what you did. Forget it. I don't like to see pretty girls slapped around, especially Americans. Americans? St. Louis, my hometown. Yours? Why, my home? Uh, London. Yes, that's it. I'm from London. Aren't you sure? Yes. Yes, of course. London. Well, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, Mr. Jordan. Some folks call me Rocky. Rocky, all these people. I I must go back to my hotel. Would you what mind? What about Paguette? Sure he isn't waiting around? I don't know. It, it's possible. Supposing I come along, huh? Just in case? Yes, Rocky, please do. I took her to Shepherd's with no more trouble. Before I left her, we found ourselves making a date for tomorrow. I picked her up the next afternoon. 
We hired a horse-drawn buggy called a Gahari. We're off on a deluxe tour of Cairo. Strange oriental quarters, bustling bazaars, the Nile Drive. The threat of Henri Paguette seemed to be forgotten. He wasn't following us, but somebody else was. A blonde, bareheaded man in a white suit. He showed up at the pyramids, the Sphinx, and the museum. Then again on a street corner where a native comedian was doing some tricks. I maneuvered her in the crowd, so she was looking at the man in the white suit point blank. Marlo, do you know that man, the one in the white suit? Oh, what'd you say, Rocky? Nothing, skip it. There was no sign of recognition, so I let it pass. As for Marlo, she seemed to have just found life, laughing, full of interest at each new discovery. I don't know, maybe she noticed the same change in me. Well, it went on that way. At three o'clock in the morning, we stood at the top of the fabulous Abdin Palace, viewing ancient and modern Cairo at a glance. But it could have been any place. San Francisco's Telegraph Hill or the Tribune Tower in Chicago. Because all I could see was Marlowe in my arms. Hmm. I never dreamed Cairo was like this, Rocky. Marlowe, that fellow down there with the native fruit. Yes, I've been listening. He's been playing it for years. Ever since I came to Cairo. It used to sound like a clothesline in a high wind. You know how it sounds now? Rocky, please... It's, it's been a wonderful night. Let's not spoil it now. Sounds like all the music that was ever written and ever could be written. In this city, Cairo. I've seen it at night and I've seen it in the daytime. But it never looked like this. Nothing ever looked like this. Rocky, please, I have no right. Nothing was ever like this. <sighs> darling. Oh, my darling. Hey, what is this? Is it that bad? <gasps> No. No, it isn't that. You had me worried. Come on, lady. We've made a discovery. I know your name, and I want to know more. No, no. How I... you got here and how we met. Rocky, I... I... Marlo, what is wrong? The, the music stopped. Please, take me back to my hotel. Without saying any more, we turned and went down the winding steps of the palace tower to where our Gahari was waiting. And as we rode slowly back across the city... I saw that she was again the tense, bewildered girl of the night before. I tried desperately to get at what happened and why, but it was no good. And we didn't say any more until we reached Shepherd's around four in the morning and stopped at the door to her room. I still didn't have it straight. Well, I guess I figured wrong again. Rocky, I wish you could understand. So do I, Marlo. Goodbye, Rocky. Uh-uh, Marlo. Just good night. <laughs> <laughs> Marlowe's eyes darted from his face to mine and back again, and all the terror was there now, because the man she'd called Emil was big and fat and evil and smiling with a devil's head. A most tender and touching scene, most tender indeed. Gorgi. Alwa, Sertambe. See that Mr. Jordan does not remember it. I whirled as a huge dumb giant in a robe and fez appeared from behind. In another second, I was locked in his arms like a baby in a cradle. Only this guy wasn't gentle. I tried to make a fight of it, but I couldn't move. He just held on with his huge arm around my neck and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Till Marlowe's lovely face and the grinning devil's head faded into a haze. And I never knew when the arms gave way and I dropped to the floor. Out of the blackness, there was bright light in my eyes. 
I realized it was from the early morning sun pouring in an open window. A man with too much pomade on his hair was bending over, shaking me. I was on a bed in a small room. But I wasn't waking up fast enough. I say, are you all right now? You just can't stay here, you know. Oh, I'll make it. Who are you? I'm the room clerk. I was instructed to arouse you. Wait a minute. Isn't this Shepherd's? Oh, dear, no. You're in the Caliph house. Small but in good taste, sir. What am I doing here? A man brought you in during the night for safekeeping, shall we say? He paid the bill, but it's now checking out time. What man? What do he look like? Oh, rather tall with a mustache. Uh, <clears throat> he was sober. His name was Paguette? Well, at least you remember that much. Let me get that phone. A moment, my good man. There's a payphone in the lobby. He had it his way, and I called Shepherds for Marlowe Granger. She'd checked out two hours before, leaving no forwarding address, nothing. What I couldn't figure out was the link between Paguette, Satan, and Gourguet. So I tried a piasta for police headquarters. Speaking. Uh, Sam, it's Rocky. Do not shout, Jordan. I can hear you. Listen, I want you to help me locate a girl. Locate? <laughs> Is that a function of the police department? Look, Sam, you know I don't call you unless it's important. Continue, please. What is her name? Marlowe Granger. Marlowe? Indeed, Jordan. What do you know of this girl? Well, she arrived in Cairo two days ago on the Doreen B from Istanbul. Green eyes, black hair. Registered at Shepherd's till this morning. And what is your interest in her, Jordan? Strictly personal, Sam, but you got to find her. She's in trouble. Look, if you ever did anything so for me... So you wish to find this girl? That's right. Well, so do we. We had best discuss this in person. What are you driving at? A man died in a Cairo hospital just an hour ago. His name was Henri Paguette. Paguette? We found him in a room at the Orient Hotel, badly wounded. Just before he died, he told us who shot him. Sam, don't tell me. Yes, Jordan. He was shot by the girl you and I would like to find, Milo Granger. Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. Let's drop in on the Robinson family for a little while. It's just about dinner time, and Ed is due back from the golf course any minute. In fact, here he is now. Hi, gorgeous. Well, hi yourself. How was the golf game? Okay. Really worked up an appetite. Say, what's on the menu tonight? Smells good. <laughs> We're having pot roast. Mother's special recipe you like so well, remember? Do I? Oh, there's nothing like it. Only just remember the catsup. My favorite kind with the special flavor. Never fear, my love. You mean Del Monte catsup. I always keep a bottle of Del Monte catsup handy. It has such marvelous flavor. Yes, friends, Del Monte catsup has the flavor, marvelous tomato flavor. Why? Because Del Monte is a special blend of piquant spices, sparkling vinegar, and beautiful big red tomatoes. Tomatoes ripened right in the field and rushed direct to the cannery. None of that rich tomato goodness is lost. It's all right there in Del Monte catsup, real tomato flavor at its best. Look for Del Monte catsup at your grocer's. You'll be delighted how little it costs. Just try Del Monte catsup. Along with Mrs. Robinson, you'll be saying... Del Monte catsup has such marvelous flavor. I wouldn't be without it. Now we return you to Cairo and tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan, the lady from Istanbul. Istanbul. 
ask Marlo Granger to come into my life, but there she was, and she was everything I'd ever wanted. Getting her out wasn't so easy. Not even now, when I knew from Henri Paguette's deathbed statement that she shot him. I couldn't believe it. The memory of the tenderness Marlo and I had known a few hours before told me it wasn't so. I wanted to find her, and I didn't. I went back to the tambourine, and Sam was there waiting with questions that went on and on. When he was gone, I left the crowded cafe and went up the balcony steps to my quarters over the tambourine. I stood there alone for a long time, looking out the window into the sun-baked street, wondering about Marlowe and thinking how this was always the way it happened to me. The same old bitterness was back with me again, and so was the man in the white suit I saw casually standing on the corner below, watching the tambourine. Well, this was my chance to collar him. Only just then, a knock came. Rocky. Marlo. Rocky, help me. Marlo, what happened? Where have you been? You're all I remember, Rocky. They're looking for you, Marlo. Whatever it's about, you've got to tell me. Help me. Help me. Before I could stop her, she'd slumped to the floor. I closed the door, got to the window, and pulled down the blinds. As I did, I noticed the man in the white suit was gone. I lifted Marlo then and placed her on a couch. Her purse slid to the floor, and as I picked it up, the heavy contents confirmed my worst fears. Inside, I found an eight-shot Webley Fosbury English automatic, recently fired. I got the gun out of sight, then did what I could for Marlowe. With the help of some cold water and smelling salts, I brought her around, and I had to make her talk to me. I don't know, Rocky. I don't know. You've got to, Marlowe. After the guy you called Emil showed up at Shepherd's, and the big fellow laid me out, what happened? I I remember only that, that Emil kept speaking to me about Henri Paguette over and over again. Where did you go? The next the next I remember, I was standing across from Henri in a hotel room. I I think I heard pistol shots, and Henri slumped at my feet. That's all, Rocky. Then why should you blank out? I don't know. There's so much more, Marlowe. Who is Emil? Emil Satan. I saw him first several weeks ago in Istanbul. What else? How did you meet him? I I only remember that, that he was talking to me, telling me my name, saying I lived in London. He promised to take me there after this trip to Cairo. You came along to Cairo because he told you to? I had no money, and he said he'd take me home. It, it was kind of him, and I... Rocky, you, you must believe me. I'm trying to, Marlo. I'm trying. Rocky, I don't know who I am or what I've done. I don't know anything except that that the noise of those shots seemed to bring you back in front of me. I had to see you. I had to see you no matter what. I think I'm glad you came. Wait here. Where are you going? To the police. No. Don't worry. They won't learn you're here. Just stay put. Don't even answer the door. I'll have my bartender keep watch. Rocky. Yes? Why do you do this for me? It might ruin you. You know I've killed a man. I'm not sure you killed a man. But the police are after me. They'll be after you. Why? Why do you do this for me? Marlo, if all this drives you to me, the least I can do is to find out what made you do it. Rocky, I don't know what's happened. There's so much I don't know. I don't care now. I found you and and you're my life. Now and forever.
So, Jordan, in spite of what we know about this Marlowe Granger, you still wish to find her? More than ever, Sam. At the moment, her whereabouts is not known, at least by the police. Sam, I'm going to ask you a favor. You've got police influence. Be careful that you do not overstep yourself, Jordan. All I'm asking is that you wire London, missing persons. Find out if a girl answering Marlowe's description is a recent amnesia victim. London? Amnesia? It seems that you know much more of the lady than when I talked to you last. How about it, Sam? You can get an answer quicker than I can. Tell me, Jordan, where are you hiding this girl? Sam, listen to me. I am listening. I've never asked you yet to step out of uniform or do anything because of whatever regard you have for me. It has been truly spoken. Be friends in social life, but as strangers in all else. Okay, then I'm begging you. I'm saying, please, get me an answer from London before you make me turn her in. Very well, Jordan. Thanks. But mark you this, Jordan. You will turn Marlowe Granger over to me when I ask for her. Sure, Sam. It's a promise. My next step to get an answer was the Doreen B, which turned out to be a slow freighter docked at Bulak that carried a few passengers. It was being unloaded. None of the crew was aboard, so I followed one of the loading trucks till it pulled up at a big woolen import warehouse. A visit to the manager's office there gave me a little of what I wanted to know. What's it about, mister? Uh, that stuff from the Doreen B. You mind telling me where it's from? A shipment from the Satan Target firm, London. Why? The uh, Doreen B, their boat? It could be. Why? I'm anxious to see one of them on business. Know where Satan's staying in Cairo? Ah, uh, he didn't say. Hey, you read where some dame plug forget? Yeah, yeah. Uh, will you be seeing Satan again? Unfortunately. He gives me the quivers to look at. He'll be here at six o'clock to pick up his dough. So will I. So that was something. But Marlowe herself was more important. The confusion, the uncertainty, the trying to remember. From there, I paid a visit to Hassan Bey, a Cairo physician who explained about the different kinds of amnesia. Now a mind already sickened might possibly be made to react against its will by powerful suggestion. And with that, I went back to the tambourine, and when I got there, I learned the promise I'd made to Sam was one I couldn't keep. The tambourine was in a turmoil. I ran back and up the balcony steps, scrambled over Chris, who was picking himself up from the landing. The door to my room was smashed open, and I knew before I was inside that Marla was gone. I was back to Chris and helping him up fast. Oh, come on. Oh, take it easy, Rocky. Oh, you told me not to let a man in. This wasn't a man, he was ten men all rolled into one. I'm sorry, Rocky. The thought of Marlowe again in the hands of Emil Satan drove me back to that warehouse fast. He had a business date there at six, and I wanted to be waiting when he got there. I made it 15 minutes before the hour. Bad luck, mister. Satan's already here and gone. Gone, but the date was for six. He showed up early. Why? Look, I don't argue with a guy with a puss like that. Anyhow, I told Mr. Satan you were looking for him. You told him? Wasn't that what you wanted? Oh, thanks, pal. It took only a few minutes more to reach the docks and find out that the Doreen B had lifted anchor a half hour before, headed for the Mediterranean. There wasn't time to argue with Sabaya now. No time for anything but to keep moving. Some fast scouting around took me to my drinking friend, Abdul Omalia, there on the docks with some other workers. Jordan Abindi, what brings you to the banks of the Nile? I need your help, Abdul. I need it bad. Uh, then you have it, Jordan. It is an honor to repay you for a thousand favors. All right, then listen. There's a boat sailing for the Mumadia Canal in Alexandria with a full crew aboard, but it's got to be stopped. Uh, is that all that concerns you? Be sure what you're doing, Abdul. We need plenty of men. I don't promise what happens with the police or anybody. Oh, you hear him, men? Who comes with us? All right, all 
Kings of piracy are gone off in the Jordan, but tonight we live. Not long before dark, Abdullah Malia, his motley crew, and I were on a launch pulling out into the Nile, armed with guns, knives, and gaffing hooks. About an hour and a half after sunset, we picked up the wake of the Doreen V, and in no time at all, we were alongside and piling over the railing onto its deck. It was all over, topside, that quick. And while our men held the crew, Abdullah and I slammed through the upper cabins. No luck there, so we went below, and at the end of a dim passageway, we found the right door. Get off this boat, Jordan, while you can. We're going back to Cairo, Satan. Rocky, Rocky, no. Stay back, Marlow. Gorge will deal with these foolhardy intruders. At once, Gorge. You, I kill now. Leave the big one to me, Jordan. At last, I met a worthy adversary. Two came together like two elephants at play. They went down with Abdul slamming the giant's head against the floor. It could last only so long, and my eyes were on aim of Satan. Rocky, he's reaching for his gun. Satan's hand dove into his pocket, and his gun came out, but he was too slow and fumbling. I twisted the gun out of his hand and let him have it across the face. And I wasn't gentle. Enough, Jordan. I am gone with the big one, Jordan. Keep back, Abdullah. I'll handle this one. What do I... Jordan, enough, I tell you. It's not enough. What have you done to Marla? What have you done to her? She came of her free will. Free will? <laughs> you knew she was suffering from amnesia when you found her. Where, in Istanbul? It was Istanbul. I don't know how she got there. But you knew of her sickness. You forced her against her will, making her kill for you. And what can you do now? Emil Paget is dead. I'm rid of a wily partner whom I hated. You'd use a beautiful woman for that. Beautiful women were Paget's only incursion. That made it easy. Yeah. You had only to instill hatred for Paget in Marlowe's sickened mind, provide her with a weapon, and suggest murder over and over, till it paid off. And she will pay, oh, Jordan, not I. You're paying, Satan. You're paying for me. I dropped my gun and I was in with my fist, taking out everything that had piled up inside me these past two days. I kept pounding him until Abdul finally dragged me off and took Emil Satan away. Then Marlowe and I were standing there in each other's arms. Oh, Rocky. Tell me everything's over. Tell me. Yes, Angel. Yes. Nothing more is going to happen to you. Darling. Darling, I will be all right. Tell me again. It's all over. Everything's going to be all right. For both of us. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. Say, if you ladies want to add extra flavor to everyday dishes, try cooking with Del Monte tomato sauce. You'll find Del Monte has a rich, spicy flavor that's never been matched. In fact, Del Monte is the original tomato sauce. For a whole generation, women have trusted and preferred it to all other cooking sauces. For instance, Mrs. F.W. Porter of San Francisco, California said, I started using Del Monte tomato sauce when we first came to California about 20 years ago. I'm a graduate of the National School of Domestic Arts and Sciences, and good cooking has always been a hobby with me. And in any dish calling for tomato flavor, I just reach for Del Monte tomato sauce. I know it'll give me just the flavor I want. Thank you, Mrs. Porter. And friends, it's true. Of the millions of women who prefer Del Monte tomato sauce, many have been using it ever since they first learned to cook. Yes, American housewives have bought more cans of Del Monte tomato sauce than any other brand. 
Remember, for matchless flavor that gives a lift to everyday dishes, buy the original tomato sauce, Del Monte. Back now to Rocky Jordan. It was all over, almost. When we all got back to Cairo and police headquarters, Abdul Omalia turned out to be a good witness. Marlowe was booked on involuntary manslaughter, and then the charge dropped, and she was put in my custody. I made arrangements for her to be taken to the hospital for treatment. Emil Satan was held for first-degree murder. Well, that was the time when I should have held Marlowe in my arms like any movie ending. But instead, that was the time the guy in the white suit walked in. Mr. Jordan? Yeah? My name is John Dawson. Yeah, I've seen you before. Yes, I've been following you and Marlowe for two days now. Mr. Jordan, I get the impression that you're quite fond of her. That's right. So what? If you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a little story. Well? Not so long ago, two people very much in love were touring the continent of Europe. In Marseille, there was an accident. Go on. Shortly afterwards, one of these two people disappeared. The other tried to follow... The trail led from Marseille to Rome to Athens to Istanbul, then to Cairo. What are you getting at? The person who left, Mr. Jordan, is the one you know as Marlowe Granger. So? What you don't know is that her real name is Marlowe Dawson. She's my wife. You... Your wife? We were married in Reading, Pennsylvania in 1943. I have the certificate in my... Oh, skip it, skip it. Well, what now? I've just been to the hospital. The doctor said that her loss of memory can be cured by a simple operation. One week's time and she'll forget all that happened since the accident in Marseille. Forget? Yes. Forget all the evil of Emil Satan and the murder of Henri Paguette. And me? Yes. Now, what are you talking to me for? Because technically Marlowe is in your custody. The doctor requires your consent before he can operate. Now, why should I give it? Because you love her, and you know I love her, and because you know the evil has to be wiped away and she has to go back to what she once was. Okay, Dawson, she's yours. Thank you, Jordan. For my life again. So she'll forget it all in a week. I wonder if I'll ever forget it. For the finest in tomato flavor, enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte catsup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomatoes. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Jordan, written tonight by Gomer Cool and Larry Roman from a story by E. Jack Newman, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya. Rocky Jordan is produced and directed by Cliff Howell, with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. 
Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station. And the story is A Stranger to the Desert. If it's a gay summer dessert you want, serve Del Monte Fruit Cocktail. Ready diced, ready mixed, a real flavor treat. It's so easy, it's so good, it's so good looking. Ask for Del Monte Fruit Cocktail, the brand that always puts flavor first. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Before I knew it, my back was against the wall. Jeremiah kept coming slowly. I was watching his hands, and that was my big mistake. Because all of a sudden, he pivoted and swung his peg leg at me. It caught me in the stomach, and down I went. I got to my knees, but this time the peg leg crashed into my jaw. Once, twice, three times. The third time was the charm. I went out. New Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Jeff Chandler. Michael Shane, reckless, red-headed Irishman, is back again in his old haunts in New Orleans. This is your director, Bill Russo, inviting you to listen to another transcribed episode, which we call The Case of Talani's Tears. Never anything new in the papers anymore. Oh, well, it's time for dinner anyway. Hey. Mikey! Mikey! Oh, Benny, what's the big idea? Trying to break my office door down? Mikey, you gotta help me. Huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm in trouble. Oh, so you're in trouble, Benny. That's news? Oh, you don't get it, Mikey. This is big trouble. I tell you, you gotta help me. There'll be something in it for you, too. Oh, no, not that again. Huh? Now, look, Benny, you've been a waterfront drifter for longer than I can remember. But, Mikey... So half the time you're getting yourself into scrapes by picking the wrong pocket or listening to the wrong conversation, then you yell for help. No, 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 this is nothing like that, honest to The other half of the time you spend making phony pitches to people, namely me. I tell you this is on the level, Mikey. Now, go on, will you beat it? Mikey, Mikey, listen to me. The tiger shark's after me. If you don't help the me, tiger I... tiger th- shark? Oh, Benny, you better lay off that kind of stuff. Okay, I'll spill it to you, Mikey. It's Talani's Tears. That's what it is. Talani's Tears? Benny, you take a lot of convincing, but I'll try once more. One, I don't care who your girlfriend is or why she's crying. Two... No, no, Talani's not my girlfriend. Two, if you don't get out, I'll throw you out. I tell you, you gotta help me, Mikey. So I did try to con you once or twice, but I'm leveling now, honestly. Get your hands off of me. Come on, get them off. Okay. Okay, Mike. Now go on, get out. But Mikey... Get out! Okay. Anyway, just coming to see you here has helped me. Huh? Yeah, maybe maybe the tiger shark will lay off for a little while now. Well, don't start that again. I'll come back when the heat's off, Mike. 
Maybe in an hour or two, then we can do business. Benny, I'm through talking. I'm going to come around this desk and... Okay, Mike. Okay. But you'll see, Mike. Be careful what you throw away, huh? What? So long, Mikey. Be careful what I throw away. Lonnie's tears, tiger shark. <laughs> that boy better get himself on the wagon and stay there. Mike! What? Benny! Benny, what? Benny. Mike. Mikey, the tiger shark. Tiger shark. I... Hey, Benny. Benny! In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of Talani's Tears. Well, it isn't every evening that a seamy waterfront character comes to my office with a wild story about Talani's Tears and Tiger Sharks and then leaves and promptly gets shot. When I sent for the police and told them Benny's story, they couldn't make any more sense out of it than I did. After they left, I sat in my office, fishing the last cigarette out of the pack on my desk while I tried to fit the whole thing together. But none of the pieces were the right shape, so I gave up and started out to get some more cigarettes. Then half a block down the street, a little gent with a face like a chipmunk fell into step. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Shane. Who are you? <laughs> it's a dark night, Mr. Shane. I'm afraid of the dark, so I thought I'd walk with you a little. You mind? Yeah, look, Chuckles. <laughs> Not Chuckles, Mr. Shane. Alex. My name is Alex. Okay, Chuckles. Now beat it. Hey, Mr. Shane, you have something which I wish. Please give it to me. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, you know what I'm talking about, Mr. Shane. Oh, yes, indeed. Look, I'm in no mood for riddles. Shove off. Mr. Shane, I do not think you like me, Mr. Shane. Nobody likes me, I guess. I can understand that without much trouble. <laughs> but I do have one friend, Mr. Shane. Congratulations. Yes. He is right here with me. My knife. And all of a sudden, the knife was headed for my ribs. I brought my elbow down hard and it hit his wrist just in time. The knife cut through my coat and the flat of the blade slid across my back. It was cold. Alex jerked his hand back for another try, but he never made it because right then my fist landed between those chipmunk cheeks. His knife flew into the street and Alex bounced off the wall behind him. He shivered a little and started to sag, but as I started toward him, he suddenly darted into an alley and disappeared. So I headed back for my office. I was one bewildered guy. All of a sudden, life was full of surprises. Like the one that was waiting for me in my office. This surprise had black hair, green eyes, and a very red mouth. Hello, Michael. Well, hello, who are you? Margot. Yeah, you know, you're the best news I've had all evening. Thanks, I hope you'll turn out to be good news for me, Michael. Look, uh, would you mind telling me why I'm so popular all of a sudden? You're very good looking. Thanks, but I'm pretty sure my manly beauty isn't what brought you around. Michael, did a man named Benny come to see you? Yeah, why? What did he want? What did he say to you? Well, he... Wait a minute. How come you're so interested in Benny, Margot? Where do you fit into this deal? Benny stole something that belonged to me, Michael. Well, what was it? I don't know. Huh? But I think you have it now. I have it? Well, now, look, I've had nothing but double talk thrown at me all evening, and I'm sick of it. But really, I don't know what it was this man Benny stole from me, Michael. 
was a small package, I think. You think? Yes. Michael, do you have any idea at all where Benny went after he left here? Yeah, I got a very good idea. He went to the morgue. But you mean he's dead? Very. But how? Murdered. I don't know who killed him, and I don't know why. No, maybe I'll never know what it was he stole from me. Oh, now, wait a minute. I still don't get what you mean by that. I'll tell you all I know, Michael. It isn't much. Okay. Hey, look, you... You got a cigarette? Uh-huh. Here. Yeah. Thanks. Started out to get some a while ago, but I never quite made it. Here's a light. Thanks. Mmm. Oh, what? Never seen eyes quite that green in all my life. You had an authority on the subject, Michael? Well, at times, namely now, I'd like to be. Oh? The, uh... The story you were going to tell me. Oh. Oh, yes. Well, my father spent his last few years traveling, Michael. Right up until he passed away last month in India. Oh? Just before he died, he wrote and told me he was sending something very valuable to me. A man was coming from India with it. You mean somebody came all the way from India to bring it to you? Yes, but I was late meeting the boat, and when I reached this messenger, he told me he'd been attacked and robbed. Well, didn't he tell you what was in the package? Well, he didn't know the package had been sealed. But some men at the waterfront told me the man who attacked the messenger was this man, Benny. One of them said Benny was coming to your office, so I looked up your address. Here I am. Hmm. Michael. Yeah? You said Benny didn't give you anything. You weren't lying to me, were you? No, I wasn't lying, Margot. Look, in the morning, I'll nose around a little down at the waterfront. I can't guarantee anything, but maybe I'll find some crony of Benny's who can throw a little light on the subject. I hope so. You know something, Michael? Yeah? I'm sort of glad I met you, even if it was this way. You know something, Margot? I'm sort of glad, too. Uh, maybe, uh... Maybe, Michael. We'll see. I sat at my desk for maybe five minutes after Margot left, trying again to remember if Benny had said anything that might make sense. All I could come up with was Talani's Tears and Tiger Shark, neither of which did. So I gave up for the night and walked out of my office. Just as I closed the door behind me, I stopped. Coming slowly down the hall toward me was one of the biggest guys I'd ever seen. On his head was a wool stocking cap. He had a peg leg and his voice was like an overworked foghorn. Well, uh, good evening, Mr. Shade. Good evening. My name is Jeremiah. Oh, no, not again. What's that, Mr. Shane? Look, don't tell me I've got something you want. I don't know about that, Mr. Shane. Come along, let's get underway. Huh? The skipper wants to have a little chat with you. Oh? Just who is the skipper? Mr. Sick is his name. Mr. Sick? That's right, Mr. Shane. Oh, he's not really a skipper. That's just a nautical figure of speech. Yeah, I know. I was once a sea scout. Now, just what does this guy Sick have on his mind? Mr. Shane... All I'm to do is navigate you to Mr. Sick. It's up to him to tell you what he has on his mind. Oh? Well, look, Jeremiah, supposing I decide I don't want to have a chat with Mr. Sick, what then? Well, Mr. Shane, with this belaying pin I've got in my hand, I think I could stove in your skull like an eggshell. Then I could trice you up like a furled mainsail and lug you there under my arm. Yeah. Yeah, you probably could and would. Okay, Moby Dick. Let's go. 
king-size escort and I went down to the waterfront and out on one of the piers to a sleek-looking 60-foot cruiser tied up there. We went aboard and down the ladder to a very luxurious cabin. And there was Mr. Sick, who was without a doubt the flabbiest-looking gent I'd seen in a long time. Good work, Jeremiah. Good work. Good evening, Mr. Shane. Hello, Mr. Sick. Would anybody mind telling me what this is all about? Not at all, sir. Not at all. It's very simple. You have something which I desire. You know something? This is only the third time tonight I've heard that little refrain. It's getting sort of monotonous. The difference is, Mr. Shane, that I intend to be much more persuasive than anyone else. Oh, now, look, before you toss any polite threats this way, maybe you better tell me just what it is I've got that you want. Obviously, the tears of Trelawney. The what? Mr. Shane, I seldom repeat myself. I will make an exception in your case. It is the tears of Trelawney which I desire and will have. Hmm. Maybe Benny was making more sense than I thought. Sir? Ah, oh, skip it. Look, just what are the tears of Talani? <laughs> Your uh, pretended ignorance amuses me, Mr. Shane. So I'll indulge it. Tears of Talani, as you know, are six matched and priceless rubies. Huh? Talani was an ancient Indian goddess. The rubies were kept in a shrine and guarded by a native priest. That is, until they were stolen. Oh, I see. Well, just where do you come in, Mr. Sick? Let us simply say that I'm a collector, my dear sir. Uh-huh. A determined collector. When there is the air of forbidden fruit involved, my determination knows no bounds. What do you mean, forbidden fruit? Well, legend has it there is a curse on the rubies. The priest who was killed while guarding them told his attackers they would not profit by their sacrilegious theft. It is told he even smiled as he was being killed. Sounds like a pleasant pastime, robbing shrines. The initial theft of Talani's tears does not interest me, Mr. Shaden. What does interest me is that I have good cause to believe you now have them. Uh, you're just bubbling over with answers, Mr. Sick. Maybe you can give me one about a tiger shark. <laughs> An erroneous legend, my dear fellow. Tiger shark is supposed to be a mysterious killer and jewel thief from the Middle East. No truth to the story. Oh? Enough of this question and answer game. Rubies, please. Look, this may come as a shock, but I don't have them. Mr. Shane, to refer to my previous dissertation on the art of persuasion... I still don't have them, Mr. Sick. I do not intend to waste time, sir. The rubies at once. Look, I can't give them to you if I don't have them. Must I ask my friend Jeremiah here... For the to... last time, I tell you I don't. Very well. Jeremiah, you may proceed at will. The big guy started for me. I edged away. I was trying to locate the door out of the corner of my eye. But before I knew it, my back was against the wall. Jeremiah kept coming slowly. I was watching his hands, and that was my big mistake. Because all of a sudden, he pivoted and swung his peg leg at me. It caught me in the stomach, and I went down. I got to my knees, but this time, the peg leg crashed into my jaw. Once, twice, three times. The third time was the charm. I went out. In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of Talani's Tears. It all started when a waterfront drifter named Benny charged into my office, mumbled something about Talani's Tears and the tiger shark, charged out and promptly got himself killed. Well, shortly afterward, a number of people started telling me I had something they wanted. The last of these characters was a Mr. Sick who told me I had the tears of Talani, which were six rubies, and that he wanted them. When I told him I didn't have them, he sent his boy Jeremiah after me. Jeremiah's peg leg was harder than my jaw, and I went out. 
Then after a while, I could hear water lapping against a pier. There I was, lying on hard planks, all except my head, which was held by two soft, cool hands. Mm. Poor Michael. Mm. What? What? Michael. Uh-huh. What, what are you doing here? I'm afraid I wasn't sure you were telling me the truth earlier, Michael. So when you left your office with a big sailor and came down here, I... I followed you. Oh. Do you want to get up? I don't ever want to get up. I just want to lie here. Yes, sweet. You know, that makes my head feel a lot better. <laughs> You're the best doctor I've ever had. You, uh, you got a cigarette? Ah, uh, still out of them. Still out of them. Michael. Hmm? Get out of it. I don't want you to get hurt anymore. Well, believe me, it's mutual, Margot. How can I get out of something I've never been in? Incidentally, you ever hear of the Tears of Talani? Tears of Talani? What's that? Six rubies stolen from a temple in India. Rubies? I don't understand. Now look, that package which your father sent you from India just before he died. Michael, you... You think the rubies were in that package? Yeah, I don't know yet. You know, Margot... You told me to get out of this deal. Now I'm telling you, you better do the same. None of it smells good. I'm going to get out of it, Michael. If it's those stolen rubies that were in that package, I... I don't want any part of them. Well, that's good to hear. Michael, please. Don't get mixed up in any more of it. Please. Mm, you're so convincing. Okay, baby, I'll tell you what. As of tomorrow morning, we'll both of us forget the whole deal, huh? That's a promise? Mm-hmm. That's a promise. After all, there are a lot pleasanter things you and I could concentrate on. Aren't there? Well, as far as I was concerned, that was it. I was through. I went on home. Just as I got there and started down the hall to my room, my landlady's door opened. She came out with a couple of milk bottles in her hand. Why, Mr. Shay, what in the world's happened to you? Huh? Your coat, there's a button missing and a tear in it. And your face, will you just look at that lump on the side of your yeah, jaw? Yeah, 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 Mrs. Wilkins. Just uh, just put it down that I've had a bad night. Honestly, Mr. Shane, why don't you find something else to do for a living? Something safe. You know, I think you got something there. Hey, look, would you mind sending this coat out to be fixed first thing in the morning? I'm going to sleep late. Sure, you just leave it with me. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'll empty the pockets. Fountain pen, wallet, couple of bills. That's funny. Hmm? What is? Yeah, this cigarette package. I don't see nothing funny about a package with two cigarettes in it, Mr. Shea. Yeah, but all evening I was sure I was out of cigarettes. I remember I had a pack on my desk and I smoked the last one right after Benny got killed. Benny killed? Mr. Shade, what are you talking about? I'm sure about? I only had that one pack when I got to the office today. Anyway, these aren't my brand. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mr. Shane, what is Oh, never it? mind, Mrs. Wilkins. I'll see you later. It had hit me all of a sudden. Benny had grabbed my arm while he was in my office. He'd slipped the cigarette package in my pocket then. And he told me to be careful what I threw away. Yeah, it all made sense now. In my room, I tore the cigarette package apart, and there it was, tucked behind the foil, a little piece of tissue paper, the diagram of a deserted warehouse down on one of the piers, and an X in one corner of the warehouse. I had a very strong hunch about what I'd find at the X. 
I let myself into the warehouse a little after midnight. It was dark inside. I went to the corner marked by the X on the diagram. There was a little pile of rubbish there. I poked around, then I pulled out a small leather case. I opened it and held it up to the window. There were six flashes of red. Yeah, the tears of Talani. I stood there a minute thinking of a native temple and a priest who'd put a curse on the rubies and died with a smile on his lips. Then I quit thinking about anything because I heard a sound. Somebody was opening the warehouse door. (laughs) Mr. Shane. (laughs) You're in here somewhere, aren't you, Mr. Shane? I'll find you, Mr. Shane. Yeah, it was Alex, the giggling knife thrower. He was silhouetted against the open doorway for a second, and then he started slowly across the warehouse toward me. I began circling around to my left. The idea was to try and get past him to the door, and then I stumbled into a crate. A knife plunked into the wood an inch from my ear. Well, at least my boy had lost his sting. I straightened up, and it almost cost me my life. Then I realized Alex probably had a year's supply of cutlery with him. So I started circling again, and this time I didn't make any noise. Finally, I got to the open door and eased outside. But as soon as I hit the pier, something very familiar came flying through the air at me. It was Jeremiah's peg leg. Well, now, Mr. Shane, you shouldn't be trying to leave in such a hurry. There! This hammerlock ought to keep you nice and peaceful, Mr. Shane. If you move, your arm will snap like a masthead in a hurricane. Jeremiah, you... Don't try to talk just yet, Mr. Shane. Just get your wind back. Getting hit in the stomach's kind of hard on a man. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Mr. Shane is with me, Alex. Good, good. I was afraid... He outmaneuvered you, Alex. You will please not tell Mr. Sick that, Jeremiah. So, you and Alex are on the same team, hey, Jeremiah? Shipmates, Mr. Shane, shipmates. Come on, time to shove off. To see Mr. Sick again, of course. (laughs) Of course. And with that small package that's sticking out of your pocket, Mr. Shane, I can tell you'll be a very welcome visitor. Come along. came along. I didn't exactly have much choice. But much to my surprise, we didn't go to Mr. Sick's boat, but to an apartment a few blocks away from the waterfront. Mr. Sick was waiting for us there with a broad, yellow-toothed grin splitting his purple lips. And uh, now, Mr. Shane, kindly hand me that leather case. Okay. Uh Uh At last... You will be happy to know you have saved Jeremiah's life, Mr. Shane. What do you mean? It was Jeremiah's blunder which lost us the map to your friend, Benny. I don't get it. We've been on the trail of these rubies for some time. Jeremiah finally persuaded the original thief to give him the map showing him where the rubies were hidden. Then he was careless enough to lose it to Benny before we'd even gotten a look at it. I see. I, uh, I do not tolerate blunders. If Jeremiah had cost us the rubies, he'd have paid with his life. Well, you tell him I'm very happy for him, Mr. Sick. Oh, but I do not intend to see him again, Mr. Shane. Or uh, Alex, for that matter. Oh, you're quite the cagey kid, aren't you? A quaint way of putting it, but fairly accurate. So this jewel thief and killer called the Tiger Shark is just a legend, huh? (laughs) Oh, I could see you were not convinced earlier this evening when I told you there was no such person. Yeah. Well, you don't mind me asking one more question. 
Not at all. What happens to me? Mr. Shane, within the minute you will discover that any encounter with a tiger shark is inevitably fatal. In a moment, we'll be back with the thrilling climax to tonight's Michael Shane adventure. Well, there I was in six apartments. I'd handed over the rubies, and according to him, I was about to hand over something else. Namely, my life. Mr. Shane, time is a fleeting thing. Right now, it is a luxury which you can no longer afford. Therefore... Drop the gun, Mr. Sick. Margo! Drop it! Baby, am I glad to see you. Margo, my dear, I... Glad you got here. I bet you're glad, sick. Hey, wait a minute. I told you to keep out of this, Michael. I was beginning to like you. Yeah. Uh, Margot, we, we we have the rubies now. We oh, can... no, sick. I heard enough to realize you were going to double-cross me and keep them for yourself. Why, you, you've got it all wrong, my dear. I, I wouldn't think of double-crossing you. I, I was just amusing myself at Mr. Shane's expense. Then amuse yourself with this. Oh, no, Margot, no. Margot! Don't move, Michael. So all along, you were running the show, Marco. That's right, Michael. Sure, I should have figured it. I guess I forgot there are female sharks, too. Yes, and the pity is you never see a shark's teeth until it's too late. Now I have them at last. I spent a year following this little leather case around the world, Michael. Now they're mine. The rubies, Talani's teeth. Yes, there they are. They're... What? What's the matter? Oh, no. No. What? Well, they're, they're paste. Paste! Paste! They're worthless! She stood there with that beautiful red mouth hanging open. Her eyes riveted on the imitation rubies. The guard was down. I dove for the gun and wrenched it away. She didn't even struggle. She just sort of sagged slowly to the floor. I called the police, and they were happy to take over from there. Well, that's about it. It's been over for some time now, but I can't seem to forget it. Because it's made me think about a lot of things. About a native priest. How he protected his temple's treasures by substituting imitations. How he smiled as he told a killer you can't profit by stealing from a temple. About the real tears of Talani, still safe in that temple. And about Margot and her outfit lying, stealing, and killing to get their hands on six globs of red paste. Yeah, I've been thinking about all of that. Because, you know, it's occurred to me that there just might be a lesson in it somewhere. This is your director, Bill Russo, again. Our story is based on characters created by Brett Halliday and written by Bob Wright. The music is composed and conducted by John Duffy, and Michael Shane is portrayed by Jeff Chandler. The New Adventures of Michael Shane is a Don W. Sharp production, transcribed in Hollywood and distributed exclusively by the Broadcasters Guild.
I want you to do is open a safe. Mr. Smith, the trouble with you motion picture people is that you see too many movies. I'm serious, Blackie. Well, perhaps you'll tell us more about it, Mr. Smith. Certainly, Miss Wesley. I don't really want Blackie to open the safe. Well, now, just what do you want me to do? Open the safe. Oh, here we go again. Look, let me explain. As I told you, I'm supervisor for Herald Productions. We're making a big picture here, and we have a safe-cracking scene in it. We just want to make sure we don't have our man open a safe that can't be opened, and we want to make sure that when he does open it, he opens it properly. Well, that should be simple. But it's not so simple when you don't know anything about safes or how to open them. We'd like you to give us a little technical advice. I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, but giving advice is a little out of my line. Let me suggest it might be a good thing for you to do. Uh, taking advice is a little out of Blackie's line, too. I asked for that, didn't I, Mary? Oh. Look, Blackie, we'll pay you for your services. Isn't this all a little silly? Of course not. We do this all the time. When we make a picture involving airplanes, we get a pilot for technical advisor. When we do a sea story, a seaman advises us. Yes, I think I've noticed a credit line for the technical advisor at the beginning of pictures. Mary, there's a credit line for everybody at the beginning of pictures. Oh, you know what Look, it is. Blackie, all you have to do is come down to the studio while we're making the safe-cracking scenes. How about it, Blackie? Oh, Blackie, I've always wanted to see him make a movie, please, huh? Oh, all right. Maybe a movie studio is the one place in the world I won't run into Inspector Faraday. Cash? Beneficial Finance Company has the cash you want for any good reason. Just say the word. Call up. Tell us how much you want and when you want it. You're the boss. Yes, you're the boss. At Beneficial. Right now, you get ready cash at Beneficial. The instant way to clean up bills. Buy the things you need. Do the things you want. For service that's just a little friendlier and faster, come to Beneficial for ready cash. Cash. Just say the word. When you want cash, for any good reason, just tell us how much you want and when you want it. You're the boss. You're the boss. At Beneficial. Beneficial Finance Company. And now back to Dick Calmer as Boston Blackie. Enemy to those who make him an enemy. Friend to those who have no friend. <laughs> All right, let's have quiet now. Okay, but... Quiet! 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 All right, we're going to make this a take. Can we have some quiet, please? It's a close-up. The camera will dolly in this way, get a full shot of the trunk, then pan to the left, pull back to film the entire room for the rest of the scene. Have you got it? Right, Mr. Billy. Gladys, you know what you're supposed to do? Yes, of course. Jack here says that Johnson is coming into the house. The camera picks me up as I see the trunk and get into it. I stay there until Johnson leaves. All right. Jack, you all set? All set, Mr. Billings. All right, then, let's go. Mr. Billings. Mr. Billings. Oh, Smith, look, I, I can't talk now. We're set to shoot a scene. Mr. Billings, I've brought Boston Blackie. He's right here. Oh, hello, Blackie. You're going to help us out on those safe-cracking scenes. Look, stick here for a while, will you? Well, uh, uh, sure. Uh, go ahead with the scene. Don't mind me. Uh, um... <clears throat> I'm here, too, you know. Don't mind her, either. Oh, hey. Miss Wesley, Mr. John Billings, our director. How do you do, Mr. Wesley? All set to roll, Miss Billings. All right, take it. Place, everybody. Who was that, Mrs. Smith? That's Bill Barker, the assistant director. Oh, and the uh, and the people on the set? The girl is Gladys Ronson, our leading lady. The man is Jack Winters, just a supporting role. The fellow Johnson you'll see in a minute plays the heavy. Light! Say, I think I'm going to like this. Smith, get some chairs for Blackie, Miss Wesley. Of course. We'll have to have quiet now for a few minutes. This is a take. 
Absolutely not. That's all right with me. Goodbye, Inspector. Goodbye. Aren't you leaving? Sure, I'm leaving. Oh, don't just stand there. You're wasting my time. Come on, let's go. I don't get it. Just look at it, Blackie. We've got this trunk spread out all over the lab. We can't find a thing. After the way your experts tore it apart, Faraday, I doubt now if you'll find all the pieces. You were on the set, Blanky. Now, what happened? Well, they were shooting a scene in which Gladys Ronson had to hide in this trunk. She got in by herself? Jack, the only other person in the scene, was 18 or 20 feet away from her. She got in the trunk herself, bent over, and pulled the top down. Well? Then Barker, the assistant director, opened the trunk. She was dead. Oh, that's impossible. I know. Only it happened. How could it possibly happen? We found nothing inside the trunk that could have fired a bullet. And no bullet from the outside was fired into it. Well, maybe if you find out who killed her, you'll also find out how she was killed. Or is that too difficult for you, too? Oh, finding out who killed her is a cinch. Ha! It was obviously someone on the set. That's what makes it so simple. Look, I have a list of everyone who was there. Prop men, electricians, cameramen, actors, directors, sound men, script girls, everybody. You know how many people were on that set? I have a rough idea, but I don't think you can count up that high. Well, I could count to 56, and that's exactly how many people were on that set. Exactly how many people could have killed Gladys Ronson. 56. How different, Inspector. Usually you don't have any suspects. Oh, never mind the wisecracks. If you're such a smart guy, uh, you tell me who killed her. If you were a smart guy, Faraday, you'd know that when you don't know how a person was killed, or who killed that person, you look for a motive as your clue. Oh, I suppose you know why she was killed. No, I don't, Inspector. But if we can first find out why she was killed, that may lead us to who killed her. And then maybe the killer will tell us how it was done. My poor, dear, darling husband should feel miserable today. Shouldn't he, Martin, dear? Should I, Sally? Why? You killed your beautiful sweetheart, and it was all a very sad mistake. You're making one now, dear. <laughs> you meant to kill me, didn't you, darling? You seem to know an awful lot. I more than seem to. I do know. I know you killed her, and I know why. For a mere stand-in, you're a rather an accomplished actress. Am I really? Perform like this for Billings, and maybe he'll see where the late Miss Runson's stand-in can do the late Miss Runson's roles. With Gladys dead, maybe you'll consider me for your next leading lady. Or, uh, with Gladys dead, are you going to desert your millions of fans and retire from the screen? Get out of here. <laughs> now, is that the way to talk to a faithful wife? What's that got to do with you? There's a gun in my hand, darling. What do you want? Just to comfort you in your sorrow with a few kind words. Make them very few. I could go to the police with what I know. You can't prove a thing. Maybe you can tell them you think I killed her and why, but they'll never be able to figure out how. I said I could go to the police, but I'm not going to, darling. Instead, you're going to pay. And pay plenty. I'll kill you first. You mean you'll kill me second, darling. But why bother to get me out of the way now? Gladys is dead. Maybe she'll have company. You won't kill me, darling. Because I've put everything I know in writing. And the police will find it 
very lively reading. If I turn up dead. All mates who I claim adjusters present are accounted for. Good. Men, you all know our record for settling nationwide auto claims fast. More than half are settled within 24 hours after notice of loss. Two-thirds within 72 hours. That's a speed record pretty tough to beat. Uh, Hoskins, front and center. Yes, sir. Yesterday, you delivered a nationwide auto claim check two minutes late. Why? It was such a nice day, I thought I'd walk. That's not the fast nationwide way. Yes, sir. All right, man. At the signal, let's move out and top our record. You there, Hoskins. What are you lagging behind for? Well, I... Well, what's the matter? My track shoe cleats are stuck in the floor. Nationwide auto insurance. Your best buy. Buy, buy. Nationwide auto insurance. Always the best for you and your car. And now back to Boston Blackie. Present during the shooting of a movie scene, Blackie and Mary Wesley witness a baffling murder. Gladys Ronson, movie star, is shot to death inside a trunk, though no gun was in the trunk and no bullet passed through it. Police lab investigation finds no clue. And as we return to our story, Blackie, Mary, Faraday, and Mr. Billings, the director, are in the prop room searching for the murder gun. Well, Blackie, so far we've looked at about 400 guns. And five are the same caliber that killed Gladys Ronson. Yes, the sixth, Inspector, and that's all we'll find. Why? Because that's the last one in the place. Well, can we tell if one of these guns fired the shot? Yes, we can, Mary. I'm sure none of these were used. The prop man wouldn't let a gun out without a signed requisition. People don't sign a requisition for murder, Mr. Billings. Can't we find that prop man? I'd like to talk to him. Uh, when we find him, I'll do the talking. What are you doing with those guns, Faraday? I'll take them to headquarters to have them tested. Must you always take everything to headquarters? Let me have them. I'll tell you which one, if any, fired the shot. What are you sniffing for, Blackie? A possible clue. Ah, pop. This gun hasn't been fired in months. Let's have another. Hmm. This one has a silencer on it. Hmm. So do three of the others, wise guy. No. Not this gun either. I'll see one of the others with a silencer. The gun the killer must have had with a silencer, all right. The shot wasn't heard. Here you are, Blackie. Thanks, Mary. Hmm. You smell the cordite. This is it. Give me that gun. Why? I want to test it for fingerprints. Don't be a dope all your life, Faraday. Any killer smart enough to commit this murder is certainly going to be smart enough to wipe off his fingerprints. I'll take it anyhow. All right. Yeah. When do we see the rushes on the murder scene, Miss Billings? It should be ready in a few minutes, Blackie. We'll be told. We'll all see it together. I'd like to see it too, Mr. Billings. Blackie, oh, Martin, Martin Doyle, the movie star. I'm to reach you all day. I'm sorry I was out. I wasn't in any of today's scenes. Well, we're about to show the filming of the scene in which Gladys was killed, Martin. I know you'll be interested in seeing it. I certainly will. Oh, uh, excuse me. Martin, this is Miss Mary Wesley, Boston Blackie, and Inspector Faraday. How do you How do? You do? do? How, How do you do? Well, let's go see those rushes, huh? Maybe when I look at the screen, I'll see a killer behind it. <laughs> Anytime you're ready to see it. Well, turn out the lights, Billings, and let's go. Right away, Inspector. What's the matter, Faraday? Is the excitement of a free movie upset you? Oh, quiet, Blackie. You don't mind if I sit next to you, do you, Miss Wesley? Why, not at all, Mr. Doyle. This is the first time I've been to a movie with you. 
when you weren't on the screen. Everybody ready? Uh, just a minute. Is everybody here? I think so. Let's see. There's Blackie, Miss Wesley, Martin Doyle. Jack Winters, who was in the scene with Miss Ronson when she was killed. Barker here, the assistant director. And you, Billings. I guess we're all here. Turn out the lights, will you, Barker? Yes, sir. All right, operator. Roll them. on the floor. It's John Gaines, the prop man. You mean it's John Gaines' body? Look, there's a knife in his back. You know something, Faraday? Sure, he's dead. But do you know something else? What? That knife in his back is mine. Here's the script of the movie we're making, Blackie. I don't understand why you want to look at it. A lot of things I don't understand, Billings. Well, do you know why John Gaines was killed in the filming room and what he was doing there? I do know that much. The murder gun was taken from the property room. Maybe Gaines saw it being taken or being brought back. In either case, he was marked for murder. Let's see. But Blackie, he wasn't in the filming room when we started the picture. No, no. He must have come in during the filming to see Faraday. Or if that wasn't the reason he came in, his killer thought that was the reason. You know who his killer is? Gladys Ronson's killer. Hmm. But knowing that still isn't any help. The only thing I do know so far is that instead of having 56 suspects, as we had at first, now the suspects are narrowed down to the people in the filming room. Well, that's Barker, Jack Winters, you, Miss Wesley, Martin Doyle, and myself. <laughs> and Faraday. Where's Faraday now? Questioning Barker, Winters, and Doyle. Blackie, who do you think killed Gaines? Tell me which one of those three killed Gladys and later picked up my knife, and I'll answer that. Where in this scenario will I find the scene in which Gladys was killed? Uh, let's see. Around page 82. But I don't know what good looking at the shooting script will do you. <laughs> I know the murder wasn't written into it, but... You never know where your next clue is coming from. Oh. Yeah, here's what I'm looking for. Find anything? No, not yet. Say, here's something. Hmm? The script is marked long shot, and you did the whole scene close up, didn't you? That's right, we did. Did that involve any major changes in your plans for shooting the scene? No, nothing serious. The camera setups were different, of course, and instead of using Miss Ronson's stand-in, Sally Green, we had to use Miss Ronson herself. Those are the only changes, huh? Yeah, that's all we Say, have. wait a minute. That gives me an idea. Something we don't have is a motive for Gladys Ronson's death. Maybe she was killed by accident. But... Why? I mean, someone who didn't know Miss Ronson was getting in that trunk fired at what he thought was Sally Green, her stand-in. They'd be dressed alike. Now, who didn't know that change had been made? All of us knew, Blackie. Barker, Jack Winters, Johnson, Gladys, Sally. All of us. Are you sure everybody knew? Everybody on the set. Everybody on the set. Thanks, Billings. 
That's all I want to know. Come in. Is this Sally Green's apartment? Yes. Are you Sally Green? Yes, I am. I'm Boston Blackie. May I sit down? What for? I talk better that way. What do you want? Maybe you'd better sit down too, Miss Green. I have a little surprise for you. Look, I don't know you. Do you know anything about guns, Miss Green? A little. See this gun? Yes. It has five bullets in it. The missing one killed Gladys Ronson. The remaining five were meant for you. How do you know? I just took it away from Martin Doyle and the police. I've just taken him away. What? We suspected him of Gladys Ronson's murder, Miss Green. We were trailing him and grabbed him just as he was entering this building. So he was going to do it. He must be out of his mind. It wouldn't have done him any good. Why not? Because everything I know about him is written down. If he'd killed me, the police would have known he'd killed Gladys Ronson. And why? Yes. Why did he kill Gladys? Because he thought he was shooting at me. And why did he want to kill you? That's all in the note I prepared for the police, just in case. Well, maybe I don't look it, but I can't read. Let's see that note. I don't have it with me. I gave it to Martha Dale, a girl in the wardrobe room. You can get it from her. Well, can you tell me now just, uh, well, say roughly what's in the note? Sure. Martin wanted me out of the way so he could marry Gladys Ronson. Oh, then you're his wife? Yes, I'm his wife. And I wouldn't let him go. The whole story is written down. It was to be used only in case he killed me. But he tried to kill me, and that's just the same thing. What are they going to do with him? Well, first of all, Miss Green, they're going to arrest him. Arrest him? I thought you said the police have him now. No, Miss Green, I'm afraid that that was uh, a little white lie. But when the police see what you've written in your note, they'll have Mr. Doyle. And what I mean, they'll have him. Quiet now. Quiet! 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 All right, everyone. This is a take. Ready, Jack? Ready, Mr. Billings. Ready, Doyle? All set. All right, Barker. Let's make this good. All right, Mr. Billings. Places, everybody. Places. This is a take. Hello, Billings. Oh, hello, Blackie. Well, will you hold it? We're just about ready to shoot a scene. Scene 160, take one. Fight. Action. Camera. Roll them. I've got to hand it to you, pal. Don't hand it to me, Harry. Hand it to law and order. And to the decency of human beings who will not allow men to destroy for selfishness and greed. But it takes men like you to preserve the things we live by. Harry, I shall always fight for law. For the right of a man or woman to live life in his own way. By his own choosing. It's too bad there's no punishment worse than death. For one who takes the life of another. Very corny speech, Doyle, but maybe we can give you what you want. Hey, wait, come on, you ruined the whole scene. Sorry, Billings, I just couldn't listen to this guy, Doyle, any longer. Blackie, what are you trying to do? Get into pictures? This is a picture you can get into, too, Faraday. 
And here's the birdie you can watch. What birdie? Doyle here. He's the one you want for the murder of Gladys Ronson and John Gaines. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But your wife knew what she was writing about. My what? I'll spell it for you, Doyle. W-I-F-E. And that spells the N for Y-O-U. Well, Blackie, for once, you didn't have to explain anything to Inspector Faraday, did you? <laughs> no, Mary, even in the third grade, they teach you to read. <laughs> when Faraday saw that note Sally Green had written, he knew Martin Doyle was his man. Yeah, but I wish you'd explain something to me, though. I know what you mean. It was the one thing that I did have to explain to Faraday. How Gladys was killed without a gun being concealed inside the trunk or a bullet being fired through it. Could you explain it? The minute I saw the rushes on the murder scene, I knew how it was done, Mary. Oh, darling, darling. All right. How? I watched her get into the trunk. First, she sat down in it, then started to pull the top down over her. She closed it slowly at first, then suddenly let it drop. Dropped the rest of the way. Oh, oh, I see what happened. She was shot before the trunk was closed. That's right. Doyle was some distance from the scene, armed with a pistol with a silencer. Hmm. As Gladys started to close the trunk, he saw his chance, fired while she was letting down the top of the trunk. She slumped as she was hit, and the top closed. Proving Doyle was a killer wasn't so simple until I got the note written by his wife. Doyle was making a movie in Technicolor, but uh, he was caught by what his wife put down in black and white. Hello, Craig speaking. I wanted to read you my leave for tomorrow's column. I... Oh, at the door. Hold the line, Barry, while I see who it is. You, look, I told you it's no use coming here. You're just wasting your time. My life's too short. By transcription, Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, starring William Gargan. Craig speaking. It was one of those nights. I was sitting in my office with my feet hooked on the corner of my desk, trying to whip up some enthusiasm over an assignment to bodyguard a couple of tin coffee pots at the Long Island wedding when the telephone rang. I let it ring a few times before I reached out and snagged it off its hook. After all, when they're that anxious, they can be mighty worthwhile. Yeah, who's this? Al White from the Chronicle. Remember me? Oh, Al White, sure. How's the gossip column racket these days? Warming up. I got a chore for you. I'll bet you have. Meaning what? I've been reading that column of yours. Those cracks you've been making about Larry Slade throwing the big fight, they can't have made him very happy. I hear he's looking for you. Yeah, so do I. I need a bodyguard. You keep printing that Slade took a dive, and you're more likely to need an undertaker. I was right about it, wasn't I? I even called around. Sometimes there's something better to be than right. Such as? Alive. Something you're not likely to be if you keep needling Slade. He's big and sensitive. My heart bleeds for him. 
Look, do you want this job or not? All right, Al. Where do I start guarding the body? The Casa Daily Bar. Midnight. It wasn't the kind of case I'd like, but a private detective is like a doctor or a lawyer. He can't always pick and choose. Anyway, a few minutes short of midnight, I parked the car outside the Casa Daly. It was an old white frame building that Ace Daly had converted into a plush boob trap. One of those joints where if they don't get your roll with the fancy prices at the bar, they got back rooms all rigged up with roulette wheels and crap tables where they do. I was holding down the bar with an elbow, squinting through the fog of blue-gray smoke when my client, Al White, walked in. Waiting long? Not very. Seen Ace Daly? Yeah, he went in the game room a little while ago. Larry Slade with him? Champ? No, why? Just a hunch. He'll be here, too, before the night's over. Daly's in the game room now, huh? Why the interest in Ace Daly? I thought you were after Slade's hide. Maybe I'm after both of them. You think Ace had a hand in fixing that fight? Yeah, and tonight I'm looking for proof. Any objection? Sure skin, if you like to wear it with holes in it. That's what I'm paying you to prevent. Maybe we better make this one uh, cash in advance. <laughs> Can't you trust me? Oh, sure. I just don't want to have to go to the trouble of suing your estate to get my money. Oh, very funny. Hey, 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 wait a minute. You must read tea leaves. Huh? Don't look now, but your old friend, the ex-champ, just came in. Is he heading this way? No, he's going on through into the gaming world. Good. What's good about it? I had a tip slave would be showing up for the payoff tonight. It settles it. He dumped the fight and Daly paid him to do it. You still haven't got any proof of a payoff. With a little luck, we might even get that. What are you going to do, follow Slade in? Not yet. Give him a minute or two head start. He won't go direct to Daly's office. He'll probably waste a couple of minutes looking around in the gaming room. Just to make sure he isn't being followed. Now, if we time it right, we may catch him in the act. And if we do, I'll have the biggest story of the year. I only hope you live to write it. I'll write it. Don't you worry about me. All right, then. I'll worry about me. I only hope that I live to read it. We stayed at the bar, finished our drink, and listened while a tinny five-piece combo did unmentionable things to a popular ballad. Then Al White dropped a handful of silver on the bar and nodded he was ready. I led the way out of the bar to the disguised entrance of the roulette room. The door was presided over by a tuxedoed man with a broken nose. We stepped into a small vestibule, waited while he closed the door behind us. Then another door opened and we stepped into the game room. A low buzz of conversation, spiced with the click of roulette balls, rolled out toward us. A dozen or more people were huddled around a huge roulette layout in the center. On the far side, a hot crap game was in session. Neither Ace nor Slade was in sight, so we ambled past a bank of slot machines toward a door marked private. From behind it, we could hear the sound of someone laughing. Ready? All right, let's go. And be your marriage be as happy as you are, beautiful, my dear. Hold it, Judge. We got company. Something just crawled out of the woodwork. Something was wrong. Instead of a payoff, it looked like a party. Lifting a champagne glass with Ace Daly and Slade was the most gorgeous redhead I'd ever seen. And a tall, distinguished, white-haired man was just proposing a toast. It wasn't what we'd figured to find. But Al White didn't let that stop him. He walked right in like the life of the party. Or maybe the death of it. Hello, Larry. Evening, folks. I've been looking for you, White. I'm going to knock Easy, you... Easy, chap. Easy. My client doesn't like to be crowded. Make it easy on yourself. You keep at it. He's got it coming. I'm going to... 
Okay. Okay, Ace. You, White, on your way. Daly, you could lose a lot of customers talking to them that way. I didn't send for you. Get out. Ace, who is this man? Yeah, Ace, why don't you introduce us? I'm Al White, Mr. Dare. I read a column for the Chronicle. How do you know my name? Recognizing faces is part of my business. And how are you, Judge Adair? I thought you and Ace Daly were old political enemies. How nice to see that you've gotten together. I, uh, <clears throat> I think perhaps, sir, you'd better excuse us, Ace. Louise and uh, I... Sit are... down, Judge. I'll take care of White. He's just about to leave. Don't mind if I do. Now. You see, I came here looking for a story in the fight fix the other night. Oh, that's small potatoes compared to a political fix. What does he mean, Ace? You and Ace, the happy couple. Well, really? And maybe if Ace helps the judge to get reelected, he can claim the bride as his reward. What the story? Ace, he mustn't print that. Not before election. He'd ruin everything. Don't worry, Why, he... Judge. He's not printing anything. That's where you're wrong. I'm not only printing it, but I'm going to do a feature piece on it. Don't push your luck too far. You're still healthy because nothing will happen to you in my place. Providing you're out of it in five minutes. Just let me take him, Ace. Let me take him. Without a rehearsal, champ. I thought you always rehearsed your fight. Well, you little rat, I'll kill you at the last thing, Ace. champ. I don't have my hand in my pocket because it's cold. I told you the guy's my client. Sit down, champ. As for you, Craig, put up the heater. Ace, you've got to stop him. He mustn't print that. It would ruin us, all of us. Don't worry, Louise. If he so much as hints at it in that rag of his, I'll not only be on the line of people who want to kill him, I'll be at the head of it. As we weren't in any position to cop any popularity prizes at the moment, there didn't seem to be much point in hanging around the Casa Daly. We got out with about two minutes left of the head start Ace had given us. White insisted that I drop him off at the combination office and apartment where he worked. So I locked him in for the night, then headed for my own apartment and some long-delayed shut-eye. I didn't need anybody to rock me to sleep, as I was practically snoring by the time my head hit the pillow. So when the phone started to dance off a stand a couple of hours later, it took me a few minutes to locate it. Oh, stand still, will you? Yeah? Now, wait. What time is it? Oh, about 4.30. Oh, it's the middle of the night. Not for me. Even my office hours. Just finishing up tomorrow's column. I want to read you an item. I can wait until tomorrow to read it. Hey, what's that? Oh, the doorbell. Who is it? Hold the line a minute. White, don't answer that. White, stay away from that. White! White! Without stopping to think twice, I knew that whoever was paying that late call to Al White carried a peculiar calling card engraved in lead. I started dressing, made par for the course, and was headed for a cab in less than six minutes. A police cruiser outside of Al White's apartment house told me somebody else had heard the shots. When I finally got to his door, it was opened by Sergeant Marty Moran of Homicide. Yeah, I might have known. What are you doing here? White was my client. Wise? Don't let's get cute, Marty. I was talking to him on the phone when he got us. Oh, that accounts for the phone being off the hook. Do I get in? I suppose so. What were you talking about when it happened? He wanted to read me an item out of tomorrow's column. Column? He didn't find any column. Just a few blank sheets and a typewriter. No column. Well, there he is. We haven't moved him yet. Yeah, me hasn't gotten here. 
Got it in the back, huh? All five of them. Hmm. Small caliber gun. 32 or less, I'd say. Hmm, big enough to do the job. Yeah. And you said there was no trace of a column. No, just a few blank sheets of paper and his typewriter. All right to handle? Yeah, I guess so. Barry, what's on your mind? Just a hunch. I'm wondering if Al White had the same habit most newspaper boys have of jamming two or three sheets into their machine at a time. Hey, you got something there. If he did, we may be able to bring out the impression on the second sheet. Well, that's worth a try. There should be some dusting powder in the lab kit. Yeah, here's some. Let's have that second sheet. Here you are. Think that's enough dusting powder on it? A little more, maybe. Shake it around. Well, what do you know? It worked. Can you read it, Sergeant? I think so. First, let's blow off the excess. Yep, there you are. Clear as a carbon copy. Take your vows later. Uh Uh-oh. Here it is. Listen. The mob is giggling over Ace Daly's payoff if the election goes right. Now, instead of fixing fights for sugar, the ace is fixing elections for honey. Ace Daly in this? Yeah. He told White that if that item appeared, he'd kill him. Well, why didn't you say so? That makes it easy. We put out a pickup on Ace, and we got it made. Better pick up Larry Slade, too, Marty. The champ? Yeah, he got into the act, too. He promised to kill White if he mentioned fixed fights again in his column. Oh, fine. First, I have no suspects. Now, I've got more than I have teeth of my own. How many other characters promised to make this creep a prospect for a headstone? Offhand, I don't recall, but as I think of them, I'll keep you informed, Marty. I got away from Sergeant Moran as soon as I could. He was yelling pickup orders into the phone as I closed the door behind me. On the street, I grabbed a cab, told the cabbie to double back up a couple of streets to make sure there was no police trail on me, then gave the driver the address of the Adair home. It was an old converted brownstone house with a large brass knocker. Through the glass door, I saw the commoded figure of Louise Adair. Over her shoulder on the stairway, I could see her father's white hair shining in the gloom. What? What do you want? I'd like to see you for a few minutes, Miss Adair. Now? What about? Murder. Murder? Yes, our wife, the colonist, a few hours ago. I see. Perhaps you'd better come in. Uh, what is it, Louise? You go on to bed, Dad. This uh, gentleman wants to ask me a few questions. Maybe your father ought to sit in on this. Leave my father out of it. Nonsense, Louise. Now, uh, what's this all about? Al White, the columnist you met last night at Ace Daly's, is dead. Murdered. And this uh, gentleman, being a detective, has it figured out that Ace did it? I didn't say that, Mr. Dare. I said he had a motive. So did a lot of other people. You, for instance, or your father. Ah. Why not? If White printed that story about you and Ace, it might have cost your father the election. And it certainly wouldn't help your social standing. Why, that's absurd. Ace and I were merely waiting for the proper time to announce our engagement. After the election, I suppose, when it wouldn't be so embarrassing? I can't have you making insinuations like that. I must ask you to leave. Suit yourself, Judge. I was just trying to make it easy on you. White was my client. And he's dead now. Maybe so. But when a guy hires me to see that nothing happens to him and something does, I want the guy that made it happen. But don't you see? We'll get dragged into it. The scandal will ruin Dad's chances of re-election. That's unfair, Louise. How can we help? 
Well, you can give me a fill-in on the time set up last night. What time did you leave the Casa Daly? Mm, about four. We came home and went right to bed. Four, huh? That would give Ace plenty of time to do the job. Was the champ there when you left? Uh, Mr. Slade? No, he left before we did. His uh, uh, lady friend dances in one of the clubs. Lily DeVore. If you can call it dancing. He saw her last night, huh? That might be his out. My father and I'd like to get some sleep. Uh, if you have any more questions, would you mind if we discussed them later in some more suitable time and place? All right. Let's say four o'clock this afternoon in my office. Meanwhile, I think I'll drop by the Carteret Arms and have a chat with Lily DeVore. The Carteret Arms was a big, expensive-looking pile of rocks in the West Fifties. By the time I got there, a heavy drizzle had started, and it didn't pep me up any to learn that Lily hadn't gotten home yet. I found a soggy cigarette in my jacket pocket, got it burning, and settled back to wait. The gleaming wet face of a jeweler's clock across the street said ten after two when a cab skidded to a stop at the curb. Lily DeVore jumped out, ran for the protection of the lobby. I gave her ten minutes to get settled, then crossed over. It took a two-spot and a lot of fast talk to get by unannounced. The two-spot was more effective than the talk. Anyway, I got up to 4D and knocked. Yeah? Message for Mr. Vaughn. Coming. Okay, Buster, let's have... Say, what is this? I want a little talk with you. Get your foot out of that door. Nice of you to ask me in. You mean I had a choice? Look, I don't know what's on your mind, but you don't... Don't be so modest, Lily. You know you're irresistible. Yeah, and I know something else, too. You're liable to be unconscious when the champ hears about this. I make it a policy never to worry unnecessarily. And I make it a policy never to entertain strange men without a warrant. That goes double for private cops. Outside. Okay. I just thought I'd help keep your champ out of the hot seat. But if that's the way you feel about it... Look, you can't pin that killing on Larry Slade. You know he didn't do it. That's not what the police think. Where is he, Lily? I don't know. Hey, where do you think you're going? Oh, just to have a look around. Get out of here and leave me alone. What's in there? I thought I heard something. Oh, mice, no doubt. That's just a closet. Stay away from it. Stay away, I tell you. As I moved Lily from in front of the closet door, I turned my back for a second. The door swung open behind me. I heard rather than saw the blow that knocked me to my knees. In that moment, the man in the closet made a break for it. He headed across the room for the bedroom door beyond. I was a little groggy, but I managed to follow him. By the time I got to the bedroom, I heard him go through the window to the fire escape beyond. I followed, stuck my head out. He snapped a shot at me from below. Gouged a chunk of windowsill a foot or so from my head. I pulled back fast. I wasn't that curious. Lily was still in the living room when I walked back. Okay, baby, playtime is over. I lose my boyish smile when people use my skull for target practice. Who was it? I don't know. A prowler, I guess. If it was Slade, why did he run? You can alibi him for last night, can't you? What? Sure. Or can you? Of course I can. We were together all morning. He left Daly's before four. When did he get to your place? About four. We left the club together, and then we... You're lying, Lily, aren't you? No! If you are, I can check up at the club. You might as well admit it now. Oh, all right. The director called a rehearsal on next week's show. Slade got bored and walked out on it about 4.15. We worked through. In other words, he had time to knock off White. 
If he didn't do it, then why was he trying to hide here in your closet? Slade wasn't in that closet. Who was? I don't know. Who was it, Lily? Oh, what's the use? Why should I cover for him? It, it was Ace Daly. What was he doing here? Same as you, looking for the champ. To help him fix an alibi? Slade doesn't need an alibi. He didn't do anything. Why don't you leave him alone? Maybe I can help him. Where is he, Lily? I told you I don't know. And I wouldn't tell you if I did. That's what I thought. Just the same, if you want to see him get a break, you get to him and tell him to get to me. I didn't have long to wait. I'd just gotten back to the four walls and desk I laughingly called my office, shuffled the two ads in rent bill that represented my mail, and lit a cigarette when the phone rang. Hello? Larry Slade. I hear you want to see me. What about you? I don't do business over the phone. Come in and... Yeah, and walk right into a police stakeout. Okay, so I'll come to see you. Where? If it's a plant, you'll never walk away from it. Where? The end of Pier 6, East River. Make it 3.30 sharp. I'll be there. Come alone. Because if you don't, you'll have plenty of company when you leave. They'll be carrying you. Pier 6 was a deserted strip that stretched out into the murky water of East River for a quarter of a mile. Anybody walking to the end would be visible for minutes before he reached the end, setting him up as a perfect target. The goose pimples and icicles running down my spine were caused by the cold wind, I think. The rain hadn't let up, and I was drenched by the time I reached the end of the pier. Larry Slade stepped from behind an old rotting shack that had been a watchman's shanty. He looked bigger than a Brahma bull and twice as nasty. Hello, champ. What do you want? The one who killed Al White. Cops think maybe you did. I can read. I don't think you did. That's nice, so... Give yourself up. I don't want you to take the fall for the killer if you didn't do it. I don't take any falls for nobody. You're set up for one right now and don't know it. You're lying. Why should I? Ace Daly's the only one got anything to gain by lying. He wouldn't cross me. Not unless he needed a fall guy, and he does. Why don't you tell him that... Hey, Ace. Busy little man, aren't you, Craig? I try to get around, only this time I didn't get around fast enough. Looks like you beat me to it, Ace. Looks like I did. He thinks you're trying to pin the murder on me, Ace. Now, why would I want to do that, Larry? Why would I want to frame the guy who's giving me my alibi? Your alibi? He hasn't even got one for himself. Not after he left Lily Duvall last night. Oh, yes, he has. Larry came back to the castle daily. We were both there together at 4.30 this morning. Now, what do you say to that? You've had time to cook up a nice little story, haven't you? But coming from the two principal suspects, I doubt if the police will take your word for it. You'll have to think of something better than that to prove you were really there. Don't worry. We can. After he got home, Judge Adair called me up to talk things over. That's funny. The judge didn't mention it to me. But then maybe you haven't had a chance to give him his briefing yet. Don't worry, Craig. He'll back us up. Willie Ace, aren't you forgetting something? What? You can't help him now. When the story of your little deal gets out and the papers tie it in with this murder, your support would be the kiss of death. His only chance of re-election now is to wash his hands of you as fast as he can and try to make hay on the other side. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry, Ace, but I gotta go see the judge. I... Kind of like to hear what he has to say before he's had any coaching. Stop him, Slade. What do you want me to do? You're the champ. 
Figure it out for yourself. Larry Slade grinned and licked his lips. He hunched his left shoulder a bit. And I saw the punch start somewhere near the tip of the shoe, but I couldn't get my jaw out of the way fast enough. It landed like a ton of bricks, and the pier came up and slapped me in the face. I don't know how long I was out. Could have been minutes, probably. It was only seconds. Both Ace and Slade were gone when I opened my eyes. I couldn't find it in my heart to regret their going. All I could do was hope that they were going to the wrong place if they wanted to locate Judge Adair. I managed to get a cab and gave the driver my office address. When I got there, two people were at my door trying the knob. Even in the semi-gloom, I had no difficulty making out the sleek lines of Louisa Dare as one. The other was her father. Looking for me? Oh! I thought you'd forgotten our four o'clock appointment. I, uh... I thought of something you should know. Good. Let's go inside where we can talk. Make yourselves comfortable. I suppose we really should have told the police that Dad preferred to talk to you first. Well, let's have it. I think I know who killed your client. I thought you might. Judge Adair, after you and your daughter got home this morning, did you phone the Casa Daly? Why, why, how, how did you know about that? Then you did make the call. Why, yes, about 4.30. Well, there goes the old ball game. I thought that Ace was lying. But Ace wasn't there. No one answered the phone. He didn't? Why didn't you tell me that this morning? Well, Dad didn't want to get involved. It would cost him the election. Cost a man his life. I finally realized too late. When Daly tried to reach me, Dave... I see I got here just in time. Hey. No, don't shoot, Daly. I won't tell anything. Don't... Oh, you dirty double-crossing old buzzer. He's got a gun, Dave! When the smoke cleared, Ace Daly was sprawled in my doorway. Louisa Dare was doing a good job of trying to swallow her fist. The judge stood dazed, staring down at an old twenty-two target pistol that he still held in his hand. I managed to pin my eyeballs back in their sockets long enough to walk over to Ace. At that moment, the door to my office burst open and Sergeant Marty Moran came tearing in. What's going on here? Holy cow, Ace Daly, who did it? I, I'm afraid I did, Sergeant. It was self-defense. Daly was going to kill both of us. M- Mr. Judge shot him, all right. Why should Daly want to kill you, Judge? He wanted to keep me quiet. I knew that he killed Mr. White. You were taking an awful chance going up against a pro like Daly with that pea shooter. I couldn't keep quiet and see him get away with murder. Even if it does cost me the election, I, I couldn't do it. Cost you the election? You kidding? You come out of this mess a hero. Delivered a killer all wrapped up. Just too bad Ace Daly didn't kill White. Didn't kill him. What do you mean? Yeah, you better translate that for me, too, Barry. Daly couldn't have killed White. I was talking to White when the killer knocked. He got up and let him into the apartment. So? He wouldn't hire me to hold his hand while he was talking to Daly in a public place, then let him into his apartment. But uh, Ace could have disguised his voice. Old wash, baby. White was shot in the back. That means he opened the door to the killer, then turned to lead the way into the apartment. He never would have turned his back on Daly. In that case, I have a little surprise for you. Brian, bring Slade in. We picked up Slade waiting outside in Daly's car. Ace, who did it? I, I'm afraid I did, Mr. Slade. I thought he killed White. Which leaves us only one logical suspect. Oh, I get it. I'm supposed to be the fall guy, eh? Why, you two-bit shameless, I'm going to let you have it. 
Right in the whiskers. You KO'd the champ. I owed him, that's it. Holy cow, so I did. Hey, he didn't throw that fight. He's got a glass jaw. Well, I'll get him out of here and booked. He didn't kill White either. He never would have used a gun. He'd get a bigger charge out of beating him to a pulp. Well, if neither of them did kill White, who... You did, Judge. What? what? And that wasn't self-defense when you shot Ace Daly in my office. It was murder. That's fantastic. Why should my father kill either of them? Because White was getting set to break a story that would have blasted your father's chances. Ace knew your father killed him and covered him for your sake. But your father knew when the heat was on, Daly would throw him to the wolves. But to go up against Daly with a twenty-two. Ace was a sitting duck. The judge shot him before he knew he was being double-crossed. Using me as a witness that it was self-defense. Now, see here. This is ridiculous. I was in bed when White was killed. Sorry, Judge. I went to your house an hour or more after the killing. You were supposed to be in bed, but your hair wasn't even mussed. I won't listen to these lies. Tell them, Dad. Tell them. What's the use, Louise? I took a long chance and lost. I killed them. Well, they can't prove a thing. Yes, they can, now that they know the story. I left too many traces. Why did you kill White, Judge? I had to. My only hope of escaping prosecution for malfeasance was to be re-elected to cover what I had done during my last term. I would have done anything to be re-elected. Even come to blows with a thug like Dale. Don't talk, Dad. They can't prove a thing. It's no use, my dear. I'm ready to make a full statement. Okay, boys, take the judge out. We'll book him later. For murder, I guess. Barry? While we're waiting for the medical examiner, tell me... Not now, Marty. I've got an important date. Anybody I know? Lily DeVore. You crazy? That's the champ's girl. He's plenty jealous. Plenty jealous, but I just found out he's got a glass jaw. So long, Marty. So long, folks. See you next week. You have just heard Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, starring William Gargan. Another exciting transcribed story starring America's number one detective, William Gargan, as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's script was written by Frank Kane and featured Santos Ortega as Ace Daly. Edward King directed. Your announcer is Don Pardo. places mentioned in this program are fictitious, and any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Three times mean good times on NBC. Thank you.